Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Benedifish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 33rd episode of the Nauticast entitled, You Can't Fire Me, I Quit. An analysis of a Game of Thrones editor 8 in which Ned Stark throws his hand pin in Robert's face and almost makes it out of town with his head on his shoulders. This episode is brought to you by all of our Lord's Commander, Mark N., Timothy W., Hayden J., and Wolfman Zach. Thank you, gentlemen, very much. Thank you, as always. And our spoiler warning, as we say for all podcasts, we'll be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. So I hope you guys who have been listening have checked out our Patreon-only episode for all $5 and above patrons, entitled Stump the Chumps Part 1, in which Emma and I answered your burning questions about things about us, our usernames, what books we're reading, our favorite tinfoil theories, what chapters we're looking forward to covering soon, and our favorite single story point of view arcs. But for those of you guys who are our $10 and above Sworn Sword patrons, you have the ability to ask us questions on our regular Nauticast feed. So... Our question from this week, it was actually one we were going to do last week, but we ended up cutting it to this week because of the the late burning uh, George R. R. Martin statement that there was a potential for a Blackfire Rebellions show coming out for one of the successor shows. So our question this week comes from Sir Thomas H., one of our sworn swords, who asks, I have a question for the two of you. Now, I'm not sure if you guys are into animation, whether it be Pixar or anime, but... As an avid Song of Ice and Fire and animation fan, I was curious if you guys have ever wondered if the Song of Ice and Fire books would make a good animated series or even movie. If it was adapted into animation, would you prefer a movie or series? And would you have any talent behind the series that you would like to want attached to it? I personally prefer it if the creators behind the Avatar, the last Airbender series, Airbender, Airbender. I'd personally prefer if the creators behind the behind Avatar, the last Airbender series, but you know, who knows? Again, thanks so much for the podcast and keep up the great work. Sincerely, your sworn sword, Thomas H. So, great question about whether we like to see A Song of Ice and Fire as an animated series. Em and I have kind of the same answer, so I'm going to let him talk first because I've been talking for a minute. So, Emmett, what do you think? Yes, I think our, our answer for that would be an enthusiastic yes. Uh, <laughs> a Song of Ice and Fire, I think, would work wonderfully animated for a number of reasons. You can do the the magical bits of the show and the kind of weirder psychedelic aspects without any concern for budget or tone and just go hog wild in terms of your imagination. You wouldn't have to worry as much about certain casting uh, snafus like uh, people getting older or people fitting a part that, you know, looks kind of strange or has bizarre costuming, or you can really fill out minor roles and have them drop away and bring them back the way you couldn't do for, uh, say, Theon Greyjoy on Game of Thrones because you have an actor, you know, right. clocked into a certain contract. So I think it would make a natural fit for the way Martin writes this series in a number of ways. And yeah, I just, you know, I, I love this, the sheer range of both uh, Western and Japanese and other animation in general. So I think you could you could come up with some really interesting mixtures of styles for A Song of Ice and Fire to reflect the kind of m- different genres and styles that Martin is drawing from to write the series. Uh, what about you, sir? Who do you think, what kind of style would you be looking for for this kind of series? So for those of you guys who don't know, don't follow us on Twitter. One of Emmett's and my favorite movies of all times is this little movie that came out in 2008 called Waltz with Bashir. It's an Israeli film which depicts 
events from the 1982 Israel-Lebanon war in which the protagonist slash director, and I can't remember his name off the top of my head. I really should. It's Ari Fogel, maybe? It would be Ari Fulman. Ari Fulman. Okay, got it. So Ari Fulman was a veteran of the Lebanon War in 1982, and he decided to depict his experiences in Lebanon through a really cool animation style. And if you guys have never ever seen this movie, we both, and I think I would, but I think we both would highly recommend you guys take a look at it. The the animation is gorgeous. The story is brilliantly sad and melancholy. And we have, you have all of this fantastic artwork that's going into it as well. I don't think it's actually rotoscoped. That is something that, that has become in vogue. Well, actually became in vogue, you know, about a decade ago. But it, what they did is they have essentially filmed live actors and then they animated behind those actors themselves in order to create this scene. So in, in order to create this movie. So one of the great scenes from A Song of Ice and Fire and from A Game of Thrones itself is the Tower of Joy scene, which is an obvious fan favorite. And it's a fantastic, beautiful, wonderful, melancholy scene where Ned Stark and his band of friends go and try and rescue Lyanna Stark from the last few Kingsguard who are sworn to Eras or Rhaegar, most likely Rhaegar. But you can imagine this scene being one where you have this glorious, beautiful, wonderful animation around it and this kind of dreamlike quality that, you know, Ari puts into the movie, the into the into Waltz with Bashir and just kind of creates this amazing, wonderful, awesome scene. Because one of the things about the movie itself and not, not to spoil it too much, is that the theme of the movie is about memory and whether your memories are necessarily accurate because this the main character has a recurring dream and actually a recurring series of dreams in which he's not sure whether they're true to his experiences, to his actual experiences in Lebanon or are ones that are that are kind of like imagined up by his mind in order to cover up some uh, some of the major events that are going on during the Lebanon War. I'm, re- I'm really trying hard not to spoil it because it is a fantastic movie, but I, I do think that would be a great touch. And uh, of course, as Martin has said about the Tower of Joy scene, it is not strictly realistic. It's, it's interpreted through, uh, through Ned Stark's dreams. And having that interpretation there and seeing the Tower of Joy and seeing Ned's point of view there would make a fantastic story, I think. And you know, I could see all sorts of different scenes depicted in a Waltz with Bashir style film. But I, I I mean, I'm not a big like Japanese anime fan necessarily, but that movie itself is one that I really, really enjoyed and really, really think that is a testament to a fantastic filmmaker and a fantastic story, too. And I think that A Song of Ice and Fire would be ripe for adaptation into some sort of anime series in the same vein as Waltz with Bashir. Agreed completely, brother. That is one of my favorite movies of the last 15 or 20 so years. And I, I love, as you say, how the style fits the theme, how the kind of the kind of dreamlike, surreal slowness of the animation fits the the feeling of the protagonist oh, trying yeah. to reach back through his memories and not just his memories, but his friends' memories. Oh, too. yeah, that's he's, great. Yeah. He goes around to to interview them and it's almost documentary style, like he's going around talking to these people, their names come up on screen. So it's like a documentary. And as you say, they did film it live action, but it's animated in front of you. So it gets that sense of almost like the illusory nature of the everyday when you're dealing with these kind of memories that you can suddenly flash back into a memory, into like a traumatic flashback. And I think, yeah, I think that would capture the Tower of Joy really well, Brand's various visions. Imagine the House of the Undying with that kind of style would be absolutely incredible. And I think I also really love the score to that movie, to Waltz with Bashir. It has this really kind of sad, slow, keening string score with one particular really haunting theme that gets repeated 
that I listen to a lot. It's just really beautiful. Dude, same. And yeah, right. It's that that it's just this melody that's just so haunting. And I feel like that. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to steal it exactly, but that kind of theme I think could fit really well for certain sad moments in the Song of Ice and Fire. Have that kind of theme playing when Ned Stark gets executed or something. Well, and yeah, I mean, yeah, go ahead. Well, who is the uh, the composer for that? Oh, that would be a uh, uh, Max uh, Richter, right? Max Richter, one of my favorite composers for film scores and TV scores, and yeah, I, as much as I love Ramin Jawadi and his work that he does in Game of Thrones, I I think that Max Richter does a great job in really reflecting the theme of the story itself. And he does these fantastic, really sad themes, and the and the theme you're thinking of is this this song called "The Haunted Ocean." Yep, that's the one. Which is this major scene which keeps being repeated in the protagonist's mind throughout the story of Waltz with Bashir, in which he's, this is minor spoilers, but where he's coming onto the shore of Lebanon and there you have the flares that are being fired over his head and they're like descending down and it's made in this gorgeous like kind of like golden and black coloring and, and things like that. So fantastic like score and also like a fantastic thing but i'm sorry i interrupted what you were saying about the movie and, and i would oh, love no, you, for I, you to sing no. the praises of that movie forever <laughs> i i agree completely and that you know that that kind of score is exactly what i think of when i think about a lot of sad scenes in the song of ice and fire uh like the, the kind of thing that Rhaegar would play at summer hall so to speak um but you know done up with an orchestra but yeah other styles would work you mentioned rotoscope something like a scanner darkly i could see that working yep. effectively for battle scenes if you're trying to capture that kind of fluidity there that would make sense in terms of the more Japanese styles. I mean, a lot of Sansa chapters feel very kind of anime-ish to me, <laughs> like with the kind of the, the the emphasis on clothes and the flower imagery and like the the cooing over pretty boys and such. You know, I think you could you could that aesthetic I think could fit wonderfully. Like there are definitely moments in Sansa chapters where the classic anime like wide eye sudden blush thing. <laughs> When a character gets like embarrassed and or horny, I think would would would, would, <laughs> would fit parts of her story in particular pretty well. So I think there's a lot of different styles you could do. But yeah, I think there's there's so much creative freedom and wildness you can do with animation in general. So in in the inevitable reboot, given the era we live <laughs> in, once Game of Thrones is done 10 years down the line, who knows if it's even a, a commercial possibility, but I would love to to see some kind of animation done for sure. Well, here's an idea. Why don't they do like multiple styles for like different point of view characters and the different things that they're seeing? So you have Sansa in anime style, Ned Stark's Ned Stark and Theon's chapters and Waltz with Bashir style, rotoscoping sure. for like the battles like of the of of the Green Fork, of the Battle of Fire, the of Blackwater, the Battle of Ice, the Battle of the Wall. I think that would be like a cool way of doing it. Like mix the different styles to reflect different point of views and how they're seeing the world around them. And I think that, you know, it, it's great when, in my opinion, when animation reflects the POV of yes. the characters yes. in the story. So having them reflect different styles would be great. And it could potentially, you know, save some, some time and maybe some money, probably not money, but save some time in terms of, uh, having different like animation teams animate, like, you know, you have the one guy doing Theon, Ned, Barristan and John Connington, you know, versus, the folks doing like Sansa and Arya and, and of course yeah. people doing like Tyrion and you know John and folks like that. I like that. Or like I'm thinking of maybe like old school Disney like kind of painterly animation for Dragonstone strikes oh, yeah. me as something that could work really well. Like when I think about like a sequence like Night on Bald Mountain or anything else from like <laughs> the older Disney movies or Snow White, Sleeping Beauty. Oh yeah. Like I feel like you could do the the Dragonstone scenes in that exactly kind of that kind of style and would work wonderfully. So hire us is what we're saying. We have ideas. <laughs> we so if, if, if anyone is listening to this that is planning on an A Song of Ice and Fire animated series in 2028 or 2038, 
I believe I can speak for Emmett and that we are available to be showrunners or potential writers for that show, but not animators because exactly. I can't draw worth a shit. No, creative creative consultants. Right. That way. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. We'll be the idea men. The actual work can be done by people who know what they're doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So thank you, Sir Thomas H., for the question. Fantastic question. I hope you guys have enjoyed our little soliloquies about an animated Song of Ice and Fire series. And again, one final reminder, our next Patreon-only episode is available for all of our $5 and above Patreons at patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. And again, that episode is all about questions like the one that Sir Thomas H. asked and our answers for them. And the first part is about an hour and 33 minutes. The second part, which will be coming at the end of next month, is going to be about three hours and 30 minutes. So hope you guys have enjoyed that if you already listened to it. And if you have not listened to it and have not signed up for a Patreon, check us out, sign up, and we will look forward to interacting with you on Patreon, as well as all the other places we're interacting with everyone on. But this episode itself is about is about Eddard Stark and his eighth chapter in Game of Thrones. And here is its synopsis. Ned Stark begs that Robert doesn't murder the bejesus out of children. The whore is pregnant, Robert yells, smashing his fist against the table. Robert had warned Ned about all this back in Edder too. He wants Daenerys, her child, and that fool Viserys all killed ASAP. And he's not about to take no for an answer. Did I mention that this was all in front of the small council? Well, it, it is. And those weasels, traitors, and sycophants are all trying their best to stay low the ground while Robert throws all these insults. And Robert yells about an axe being over his head, and Ned's all like, what the fuck? What fucking axe, dude? And besides, we don't even know if it's true. Oh, it's true, Varus breaks in. Varus doesn't bring... <laughs> Varus doesn't bring lies to the king. <laughs> yeah. Okay, sure. <laughs> Okay, Vars. Cool, man. But at least this time, Vars isn't lying. He'd gotten the info firsthand via that traitorous, slaving, creeping Jorah Mormont. And his information is as good as gold. But Ned still doesn't care. If it's if it's not true, no one needs to worry. If Danny births a daughter, then, then they're good. If the child dies in infancy, then nothing. And even if it's a boy, the Dothraki will never cross the poison water. Come on, Robert. You're being a fucking dick. Robert is still angry and drunk. Did I mention that? And would a drunk, angry man back down from being challenged? No. They're not kids. They're dragonspawn. And dragonspawn must be put down. But Ned, he's a stubborn hero. Even Aegon did no conquering until after he was weaned. Add frustration onto Robert's sunny outlook. He orders his counselors to talk some damn sense into Ned Stark. Faraz gives his usual spiel about doing evil for the good of many. Renly tells Ned that he sh they should have had them killed long ago, but they were prevented by John Aaron's mistake of mercy. Yeah, that wasn't a mistake, Ned counters. They could even look to the example of someone in the very room. Sir Barristan had fought for the Targaryens. And Robert, didn't you say after the trident that you won't kill a man for loyalty or for fighting well? Yeah, he did say that, but it's not the same. Barristan was a knight of the Kingsguard, but Ned's beyond reason at this point, and he gives the truth to Robert as a result. Whereas Daenerys is a 14-year-old girl, Robert, I ask you, what did we rise against Aerys Targaryen for, if not to put an end to the murder of children? <sighs> well, that's not Bob's point of view. They went to war to put an end to Targaryens, according to him. Oh, yeah? Well, try this on for size, Robert. You weren't afraid of Rhaegar, but you're petrified of an unborn child. How cool are you now, Robert? Well, this goes over about as well as you'd imagine. Robert threatens Ned, asking if he's forgotten who's king. No, Your Grace, have you? 
It's a great line. Man, that's not like he's usually not known for the stick burns, but he's really piling, piling them on here. But Robert's done with talking. He tells his counselors to again tell Ned what's what. They all in turn do their things. Barristan says there's no honor in killing people in the womb and that he stands with Ned. Good job, Barry. You get a cookie. Renly does his she must be killed terrorist routine. Faraz is sadly in favor. Pycelle brings up the point about one death to save tens of thousands of lives. Very Taiwan-esque. Littlefinger is a fucking asshole and jokes about kissing ugly women and how you must need to close your eyes and get on with it. Barristan's rightfully aghast. A kiss? A steel kiss, Littlefinger replies. And that's it. The final tally is Barristan and Ed versus everyone else. But who's going to kill her? How about Jorah? He wants a pardon, Vars explains, but having Jorah do it would be, you know, an instant death sentence for him. No way. But poison, the tears of lice could work, and no one would be wiser for it. Pycelle suddenly wakes up and looks suspiciously at Vares. Robert isn't happy about using poison either. It's a coward's weapon. But Ned's had about enough of this shit. Fuck this, fuck that, and fuck you, Robert. Do it yourself. You're that much, you fucking coward. Well, if you thought that Bob was angered before, he's super fucking pissed now. He bursts out of his chair, furious at Ned, and that his wine cup is empty. Just have it done! Sure, Ned says, but I'm not going to be a part of this. He takes his hand clasp off his cloak and lays it in, on the table in front of Robert, saddened by the man that Robert had become. I thought that we had made a nobler king. <sighs> Again, sick burns by Ned. Robert screams at Ned to get the fuck out and run back to Winterfell before he has Ned's head on a spike. Ned bows, turns, and walk out and walks out wordless. He overhears the counselors talk about the faceless men, our first reference to them in the Nodcast podcast, and how they could kill Danny, but Littlefinger challenges that their methods are super expensive, and that's only for killing a merchant. Who's to say what it would cost to kill a princess? But the door is closed behind Ned, and Ned is off to get the fuck out of King's Landing, especially before Robert finds out about Catelyn's abduction of Tyrion. He thinks Robert wouldn't actually harm his kids, or him, but then again, Robert was angry enough about Rhaegar to order the death of his still-living sibling just now. He gives orders to his guards that he'll take Arya and Sansa with him back to Winterfell, and tell no one. As his men make preparations to depart, Ned has the opportunity to think. He's cool with getting back to Winterfell and hanging out with Catelyn. Maybe they'll even make a new son together. But leaving wasn't all good. The realm was in pretty awful shape with Robert and his counselors. And there was still that matter of who actually murdered John Aaron. He could sense the truth was nearby, but he hadn't quite said that truth yet. Ned thinks back to his trip to Winterfell and thinks a sea voyage might be best. Besides, he could stop by Dragonstone and ask Stannis what was up. Pycelle had sent ravens to Dragonstone, but no response was, for was forthcoming from Stannis. But even if Stannis has the truth, what then? Should Ned hide it? It might be that the truth might be more dangerous than keeping secrets. But then Ned's back to thinking about the knife. Was it really Tyrion's knife? Why would he want Bran dead? Was Robert a part of it? So many questions and so few answers. As Ned gives orders to find a fast ship, a visitor arrives begging audience. It's goddamn Littlefinger. And though Ned initially wants to turn him away, he allows him entrance. Littlefinger walks in like he owns the place and tells Ned that he's en route to Lady Tanda's table as she wishes to marry her daughter to him. But Ned really doesn't give a shit about that. Why are you here? Well, Littlefinger tells Ned that he convinced Robert not to hire the faceless men to kill Daenerys. Varus will see to it instead, and the person who does the deed will become a lord. Ned is absolutely correctly outraged, but Littlefinger shrugs him off. Some sellsword will try it and fuck it up, but then Ned will get what he wanted. Daenerys will survive. Ned is frankly unamused. You sit in council and talk of ugly, of ugly women and steal kisses, and now you expect me to believe that you tried to protect the girl? How big of a fool do you take me for? 
Well, a big one, Littlefinger laughs. Ned continues being unamused. Murder isn't funny, you fucking shit. But Littlefinger has a question to ask Ned. When are you getting out of Dodge? Well, soon. But if you're still around by nightfall, Littlefinger would love to take Ned to a secret brothel that Jory had been looking for. And Littlefinger won't even tell Catelyn. And that is A Game of Thrones Edward 8. Some gripping emotional moments that show us that Ned Stark, despite his faults, is a good man and puts action to his good words. What do you think about this chapter, Amit? Well done, sir. I just wanted to say we had a nice uh, little moment on Twitter the other day where there are, of course, a lot of fandom accounts that are, you know, named after the various characters in tweets <laughs> in character as the characters. And uh, unsurprisingly, the, the Stannis Baratheon one is, is a fan of ours and we interact with them from time to time. <laughs> and they said the other day about our most recent episode before this that... Uh, that they want me to start doing the synopses because Jeff is entirely too gleeful and he will he will have no such tomfoolery on, on the podcast of the King's Men. It's a very so, Stannis thing to do. It's a very Stannis thing to say and I think he'll be thoroughly horrified by Jeff's uh, wonderfully vulgar uh, Ned praising <laughs> synopsis just there. But I loved it. So well, nicely thank you. done. Sir. Yeah, it's a great chapter. I mean, it's, you just can't. I mean, this one I had a lot of fun with, like, doing the writing the synopsis for, and it, because it's just a, a fabulous chapter. It's one of my favorites. I mean, I feel like I keep saying that every single episode, right? <laughs> this chapter is one of my favorites. But, I mean, each, cha- each chapter, I'm like, this is a really great chapter that George wrote for Game of Thrones. It's almost like these are really good books, and they get better on reread. I know, possibly, right? Can't possibly be the case. No. But, yeah, we've been, we've been building up to this particular chapter for quite some time. We've mentioned it in multiple episodes, specifically this opening scene between Ned and Robert on the Small Council, and for good reason. It's not necessarily my favorite Ned chapter. I think I have a stronger emotional connections to some of the ones that come later, the Tower yeah. of Joy one, his last one in the Black Cells especially. But this is one of the most important Ned chapters because this is where all the tension and uneasy feelings that have defined Ned's chapters to date are brought screaming to the surface. Rather than remembering the murder of children, as he has in previous Ned chapters, he is asked to actively take hmm. part in murdering children. Rather than merely feeling uncertain about Robert, as he has previous in previous chapters, Ned gives up all hope in his best friend here. And rather than just chafing at his new job, Ned outright walks away from it. Hmm. This is a really vital chapter, not only for the plot of A Game of Thrones, but for the themes of the entire series, as we're going to get into a bit as we go on. So let's hope we do it justice. Let's hope, man. Take us away. So as you noted in your synopsis, a major reason this particular chapter is so effective is how it starts. Just slam bang. We're in the middle of an argument. We don't see the argument start. We don't see Varys bring up the information from Jorah Mormont. They are in conversation about yeah. this really heated issue. We are immediately introduced to the core question. As Ned says in the opening line, you are talking of murdering a child. So, okay, we know what the fight's about. Right. And in, ter- in terms of the tone, Ned is already, quote, begging. Robert is already screaming. So the tone <laughs> is intense. And we see the most, so to speak, stark division uh, between the two old I friends. See you. I see you. Got me there. Gotcha. <laughs> And you got Robert's words in particular are just are so blunt, quote, I want them dead. And they're so dehumanizing and gross. The whore is pregnant as yeah. to immediately crystallize both the stakes of what he's talking about and how far he's fallen in Ned eyes, Ned's eyes and ours. Yeah, you're, again, as always, 100% correct in that this chapter just throws us into the action. And you have to wonder whether Martin wrote the introduction for this small council scene and then just later just cut it out of the book altogether. So he wanted to kind of create in his mind the stakes that are going on, the beginning of the argument, the middle of the argument. But by this point of the chapter, we're at the end of the argument where Ned is like, you cannot order the murder of children. And the fact that Ned is saying you cannot order the murder of children then helps 
really raise the stakes for us exponentially. You know, we talked about Catlin 5 being that moment where the story really takes off. And it does. It, it takes off in terms of framing issues about the War of the Five Kings and showing us the genesis for that major event that is going to dominate the next five books in A Song of Ice and Fire. But this chapter, to me, really feels like that we've gotten the players introduced. We've gotten Varus. We've gotten Littlefinger. We've gotten Pycelle. We've gotten Robert. We've gotten Ned, of course, for seven chapters before this. Here, the chapter just explodes into action with a small council meeting. And of course, in our next chapter, we get that famous confrontation between Ned and Jamie outside the brothel in King's Landing. So this is, to me, where the action in King's Landing really escalates and escalates in such a way that it makes for a fantastic, fabulous chapter that really shows Ned as isolated in King's Landing. Yeah, that's a great point. This is also a blast off chapter like Catalan 5, just in a kind of different way and in a different setting. But the same same sense of, oh, okay, this is what it's been leading to. Yeah. This is what it's really about. This is why these players are introduced. This is what it's for. And uh, it's interesting contrast with Catalan 5 because, of course, the whole point of the end of that chapter is everyone's on Catalan's side. She's gathered all her allies together. Right. She's going to put them to use. Ned is in the opposite position. The quote is, the other counselors were all doing their best to pretend that they were somewhere else. No doubt they were wiser than he was. Eddard Stark had seldom felt mm. quite so alone. So as you said, these other counselors are just basically moral cowards who will be of oh, no yeah. use to him. And that establishes right away the, the drama of it. We know the situation, we know the consequences, and we know that all Ned had on, has on his side, unlike Catelyn, is whatever arguments he personally can marshal. And I think, it, I think the best way to talk about this scene really is to kind of go through Ned's arguments. Because yeah. he makes several distinct arguments here and gets several distinct responses from Robert and the other counselors. And I think that really kind of brings the different themes and ideas to the surface. So, Absolutely. First argument he makes is, quote, you will dishonor yourself forever if you do this. This will be a blight on your honor, on your position as king, on your name, as you as a man. And kind of unsurprisingly, given the themes of Ned's story, this promptly proves ineffective for, for several reasons. The first is, is that Robert notes he would rather, basically he would rather live dishonorably than die honorably. The exact <laughs> opposite of what Barristan tells his squires in Marine, which is that it's better to die with honor than live without it. Robert <laughs> is the opposite of that. He says, in response to Ned's argument, quote, Then let it be on my head, so long as it is done. I am not so blind that I cannot see the shadow of the axe when it is hanging over my own neck. And of course, one of many ironies in this chapter is that there is, in fact, a much greater threat to his life far closer <laughs> to home, namely Cersei, and he is very much blind to it, as we saw throughout uh, Sansa 2 and Eddard 7. So for all that Robert is grandstanding about... He'll happily take the blight on his honor because he's got his eye on the prize. He's got an eye on the threat to his life and his crown. No, no, he actually doesn't. He's, he's the one person in King's Landing who seems completely unaware of the Lannister coup in motion against him. Mm -hmm. You're right about that. The, the irony, too, as well as Cersei, is that Daenerys and the Dothraki don't stir until the plot actually unfolds on Daenerys Targaryen, until the wine cellar attempts to offer Daenerys the poison chalice in Daenerys 6 from A Game of Thrones. So it's really, it's really, it's ironic, of course, but it's also just kind of like, you kind of like scratch your head and you look at the law of unintended consequences and intended consequences for that matter too. Say that Daenerys and Viserys had actually been killed in Danny 6. Do the Dothraki then just take that lying down or do they plan to cross the poison water and attack Westeros anyways in order to satiate the vengeance that Khal Drogo will want after Daenerys Targaryen is dead? I think that's a question that is kind of an alternate universe about what ifs, but we see 
the Dothraki stirring and then attacking the Lazarine to Daenerys Seven of A Game of Thrones and preparing to make the march to Westeros as a result of this very plot that Robert Baratheon is consenting to. It's a double irony that Cersei is both the, the true threat to Robert, but that Robert creates a whole new threat in the form of the Dothraki in attempting this plot against Daenerys and Viserys and Daenerys' unborn child. Yeah, that's a terrific point and a great parallel to the irony with Cersei too is that there actually was no axe, Robert. Drogo was not remotely interested in coming to fight you. He right. wasn't planning on it. He was refusing Daenerys repeatedly. Uh, Viserys is, of course, going to die before he ever gets the chance to lead a Kalisar, uh to Westeros and probably was, you know, would never have the chance anyway, <laughs> being less than the shadow of a snake and all that. And that only happens after Robert's already dead. Right. Like, he, he, he doesn't even get the chance to confront this, this threat he saw was coming. It's Robert's already dead. Ned's already in jail. The War of Five Kings is already starting. And then the threat to Daenerys' life occurs, fails, and Drogo prepares to come to war. So yep. I think that is one of the best little plot constructions Martin does to show you the kind of the futility of vengeance and how, you know, addressing a threat you think is there might actually bring the threat into being. I think that's, that's, a, that's a really clever writing move on Martin's part. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The interesting thing about Robert and Honor with this argument about Ned's is it's not so much that... Robert doesn't care about honor at all. It's actually kind of worse than that. He has this really shallow, hypocritical perspective <laughs> on it, as Ned notes. When they, they've had the vote and they move on to the method, as you say, uh, and Varys brings up the tears, the, the tears of least as a way of, of killing Daenerys, Robert is, is not, ex- not happy about that. Poison is a coward's weapon, the king complained. And as Ned points out how infuriatingly hypocritical that oh, is, yeah. given the tone of this conversation, Ned had heard enough. You send hired knives to kill a 14-year-old girl and still quibble about <laughs> honor? Like, what? Like, so that's not genuine honor. That's just, like, masculine bravado that Robert right. doesn't want to be seen using poison. But, like, you're still killing them from... You're killing a pregnant child from half a world away, but you still you still want to be tough. Exactly. You still want to be manly about it. That's so meaningless. So you can see that, you know, Robert's attachment to honor has just become this this very superficial self-regarding thing that has no connection to values and that Ned still has the connection to values. And I think Martin is directly trying to contrast Robert's uh, superficiality with Ned's northern model of justice. Quote, do it yourself, Robert. The man who passes the sentence should swing the sword. Look her in her eyes before you kill her. See her tears, hear her last words. You owe her that much, at least. Hmm. So this is kind of paying off the lesson he was trying to teach Bran way back in the the second chapter in the series, the first uh, non-prologue chapter in the series, about not only his model of justice, but the values behind it and why he believes it's important to do it himself. And now he sees his own king, his brother, who in arms, who he fought for, is, is just completely denying that model, and it makes him sick, as it should. Yeah, it does. I do wonder, and I don't think this is explicit in the text, but I do think back to Eddard 7, where Robert says that he dreams of crossing the, the narrow sea as a sellsword and fighting his way through the disputed lands and, and whatnot. And maybe it's, maybe it's a subconscious act on Ned's part, but his whole, whole idea of do it yourself, Robert, look her in the eyes before you kill her, see her tears, hear her last words might appeal to Robert's nature and his desire to become a sellsword and to relive his glory days as a rebel in Robert's Rebellion. Now, I don't think that's conscious in this chapter. George and Ned don't make that connection explicit here, but you can see that perhaps that is filtering into the subconscious of Ned's argument to Robert that he's he has the ability to do what he wants to do, and he can do it in a way that's not righteous by any stretch of the imagination, but is less dishonorable than the way that he is proposing here or the way that he is willing to accept in in the form of poison. But in this chapter itself, 
Robert is backed up by counselors who believe that it is okay to kill people as long as there is a greater good at stake. Or or allegedly, they believe that there's a greater good at stake. Absolutely. And I, I like that point about that it might be kind of a subconscious nudge on Ned's part, given that conversation they had in the previous Ned chapter. As you say, it's not made explicit, but there's so much kind of running under the surface of this chapter and, and Ned in terms of uh, John and how he relates to the issues under discussion. So that could just be another thing that's that's running under the surface. And I, a comparison just, just came to mind that this is actually very similar to how Asha talks to Stannis in huh. Theon's released Winds of Winter chapter, that she also says, kill him yourself, your grace, take him to the heart tree, do it the way the northerners would. Yeah. She's kind of making that same argument and also kind of appealing to the king's self-conception as being a just man, that if that's really who you are, you have to do it this way. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, we haven't seen how that paid off yet, of course, because that's as far as we've gone in that storyline in The Winds of Winter. But I think it's one of many parallels between uh, this scene and uh, the later plot points in Stannis' story, as we'll get into later in the episode. Absolutely. Great, but yeah. great comparison. Well, thank you, sir. But yeah, as you say, uh, there's Robert makes his counterarguments, his counselors make their counterarguments, um, and we'll get into a little more detail of counselors' counterarguments <laughs> later on. But so Ned is forced to kind of shift his arguments. He shifts from the moral to the practical. So the second argument he makes is, quote, there is no axe, Ned told his king, only the shadow of a shadow, 20 years removed if it exists at all. <laughs> so basically what Ned is saying here is that Robert is jumping the gun. They are several domino falls away from a legitimate threat to Robert's regime. If you are wrong, we need not fear. If the girl miscarries, we need not fear. If she births a daughter in place of a son, we need not fear. If the babe dies in infancy, we need not fear. So there's all he's saying there's all these things that need to happen before this is even a legitimate military threat, Robert. And you're treating right. it like they're already here. And you know he's not wrong about any of that. The problem with this argument is that it implicitly sets out criteria by which it would be permissible to send hired knives to kill a 14-year-old girl. Because he's like saying, if implicitly he's saying, if these were fulfilled, then you'd be right. And Robert kind of picks up on that, right? Robert says, but if it is a boy, Robert insisted, if he lives. So then, you know, Ned, then Ned doesn't really have a response. So, I mean, he doesn't actually think the murder would be okay if all those hurdles were surmounted. So it's kind of an empty argument. Yeah, It's, it's, it's really kind of semantics and he's just kind of putting it off. It reminds me a lot of the argument on Team Dragonstone in A Storm of Swords about the fate of Edric Storm. When when Melisandre was saying that, I need Edric Storm for my Azor High prophecy narrative, and you know that narrative is true because the kings I said would hmm. die if Stannis burned the leeches are dying. And Davos points out, but only two of them so far. Two is not three. You haven't actually fulfilled the terms of the bargain. And he's right. But the problem is, is that that leaves the door open to her when, in fact, Joffrey dies and all three kings are yeah. dead. And that is that is ultimately what sways Stannis. Uh, he agrees with Davos at first that two is not three. But then when Joffrey dies, he seems much more on board with sacrificing Edric Storm. So it's not an incorrect argument that Ned is making here, but it is, I think, a morally weak one that Robert immediately pokes holes in. You're right. It is an absolutely morally weak argument, but I feel like that Ned is kind of up against a wall and that he's kind of throwing everything he can and seeing what will stick. And unfortunately for Ned, Ned always strikes me as not the greatest arguer and debater in the series. He's kind of the guy when, when Cersei is throwing shade at him and, and Eddard, is that 11 or 12 from, from a game 12, of Thrones? 12, I think. 12. Yeah. 
where where Cersei is like saying like, oh, well, you, you know, raped whoever it was down and you raped a Shardane and that's how you got your bastard and those types of things. Ned is, is silent because he doesn't have an argument or he doesn't want to broach the argument that uh, no, actually, Jon Snow is, you know, I didn't actually do anything with with the Shardane and that Jon Snow is actually from from Rhaegar and, and my sister Lyanna. But, you know, Ned's not a great arguer. So he's kind of throwing anything against the wall and see if it, seeing if it'll stick. But I think it's a fantastic comparison between what we see in Davos's argument from A Storm of Swords and that, yeah, it's it's absolutely correct. It's a practical argument, but those practical arguments could fail. And we do know from later chapters in the Game of Thrones that she was carrying a son. And we know from Danny's House of the Undying Visions that son, being Rago, was seen as burning cities with burning cities in his wake, leading the Dothraki, having this kind of Dothraki skin and pale Targaryen hair. So these are great practical arguments, but those practical arguments can fall down if if Robert is right. And as it turns out, Robert Robert is right, kind of, um, because of course Rago is born as with a with a dragon tail and is deformed and all those types of terrible, very sad, tragic things. But regardless though, it's it's still dishonorable what Robert is doing here. And that's something that Barristan brings up in his argument. Yeah, Robert is, he's right about the conditions. And so that's why, that's the weakness in Ned's argument is that Robert can just knock those down because Ned is just bringing up hypotheticals and it could easily go the other way. And as right. you say, it very, if not for Miri Mazdur, uh, it would have. And I, I love that image from the House of the Undying of Rago with his Dothraki skin and Targaryen hair. That's just such a fascinating yeah. AU and what a kind of interesting, like cultural image that is to think about a, a figure who would like, t- connects like Targaryen history and prophecy with the Dothraki history and prophecy. And of course, mm-hmm. Daenerys will herself eventually do that. I oh, think yeah. when we get to Winds of Winter. Absolutely. But yeah, that's an interesting image of Rago. And yeah, as you say, Barristan, interestingly, is the one who tries to link these moral and practical arguments, the it is dishonorable and the it is too distant a threat arguments. He does link them both here when he says to Robert, there is honor in facing an enemy on the battlefield, but none in killing him in his mother's womb. And he does it again in A Dance with Dragons when arguing with the shave paid about the child hostages. And this is a great quote I love. You kill men for the wrongs they have done, not the wrongs that they may do someday. That's great, yeah. One Wonderful line just in and of itself, but also kind of really... Like I said, t- ties these two themes together. That it, it's both that killing Daenerys is dishonorable because she's a pregnant child, uh, <laughs> but it's also wrong because you're talking about a threat that's not on the horizon even. And there's something wrong about that too. That you're you're acting as if you know the future and you know what these people are going to do and the decisions they're going to make. And as we already right. said, Robert is actually dead wrong about the decisions being made in Essos at that time. So uh, Barristan, all Barristan has his weaknesses as well, as we'll get into in a bit. But I find it interesting that he kind of is able to bring those arguments together. And yeah, I just really love that line from Dance. You kill men for the wrongs they have done, not the wrongs they may do someday. That really resonates in real life, but also just across the series, I think. Yeah, Barristan has a great point. And, you know, again, look, looking back at Eddard 7, Ned has this vision of Robert taking his warhammer and swinging it against Tywin Lannister. And he thinks, oh, if, if these certain events come to pass, then we can return to Robert as he was during Robert's Rebellion. So you can see why Barrison's argument might appeal to Robert in facing an enemy on the battlefield as opposed to killing him in the womb. But Robert is beyond reason at that point. And it's, it's sad because one of the reasons that Robert became the king of Westeros was because of the tyranny of a king ordering the murder of children. Yeah, and this is where we get into Ned's third and most critical argument. And this is the kind of the line we've 
brought up previous times in episodes and really defines this chapter for me, which is, quote, Robert, I ask you, what did we rise against Eris Targaryen for, if not to put an end to the murder of children? <laughs> and that's just such a, a powerful and fascinating argument, because argument, it gets at not only the decision that Robert is making here and now in this small council chamber, but it gets at the very foundation of his regime in the first place. Ned is bringing us back to Robert's rebellion, to Robert's legitimacy as king. And what Ned is arguing is that the only reason Robert has the authority to give such an order is because of a rebellion fought in the name of defying such an order. Right. That he's he's being hypocritical not just about his honor, but about the very foundation of his his crown. It's It's interesting because it... Ned is putting the focus here in terms of Eris's crimes not on his family, not on Brandon and Ricard, but on the the squires that Eris had killed. Because mm-hmm. I'm assuming those that's the the children he's referring to here, because Brandon and Ricard were not children. Yeah, obviously. Or it could be referring to him and him and his him and Robert for that matter too, because they were what him and Robert as well. They, I mean, they old? were they were yeah. I think uh, they were yeah. They were in the 18 to 20 range as well. Um, so yeah, to them, which is interesting because that's not generally the focus of Eris's crimes. Generally, you, you talk about Brandon and Ricard, who right. are very clearly adults. Uh, so that's interesting to have Ned to have this take uh, on, on why it was important to bring down Eris, this specifically hideous crime. And so the implication is, is that if Robert orders Danny killed, he is not fit to sit the Iron Throne because he's no better than Eris. Hmm. And that's, that's a really kind of powerful critique that Ned is making of his king. And, and this attack on Robert's legitimacy is linked to the theme of mercy that we brought up a couple of times and to the idea that Robert has fallen from grace, that he used to be better than this. Hmm. He used to understand. Quote, yeah. mercy is never a mistake, Lord Renly, Ned replied. On the trident, Sir Barristan here cut down a dozen good men, Robert's friends and mine. When they brought him to us, grievously wounded and near death, Roose Bolton urged us to cut his throat. But your brother said, I will not kill a man for loyalty, nor for fighting well. And he sent his own maester to tend Sir Barristan's wounds. He gave the king a long, cool look. <laughs> would that man were here today. <laughs> wow. Mike so Trump. once again, great, exactly, great shade throwing by Ned, as you were mentioning earlier. I love, he's, he's just throwing all these little daggers at Robert throughout this whole scene. As a sidebar, I love that this is the context in which Martin first mentions Roose Bolton, <laughs> who was one of my favorite secondary characters in the series. And I love that he's introduced in this way, urging the murder of a wounded prisoner, because that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's extremely Roose. Oh, yeah. Uh, per, per the show, when he just shrugs at Rob and says, too many hostages. Um, <laughs> it's interesting that he was in a position to give Robert of uh, advice to Ned and Robert in this way that he was like there, like on the trident with them talking personally to them among all yeah. the bannermen. I mean, I wonder if he was close by Ned's side throughout the campaign. It's interesting to think because Ned, of course, brings all those loyal northern men with him to the Tower of Joy. It's interesting to think about what a different story this would be if Roose had been one of those men <laughs> and had either died there or, you know, came back knowing the truth about R plus L equals J. That's just an, a completely different story. But yeah, it is a nice little introduction of Roos. Who knows when Martin put that into the chapter, though, or what he had in mind. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. It's an open question, really, because as you guys know from the 1993 letter, Roos Bolton was not a character that George had originally envisioned. Neither were the phrase, for that matter, too. So it, to me, it feels like that Roos Bolton was a later addition to A Game of Thrones and was potentially a later addition to this chapter as well. And not to spoil what I'm going to say about my – actually, not really much of a dislike, but my dislike for the chapter – is that you do wonder whether George integrating the Boltons in and Roose Bolton's history was a reason why he ends up expanding this chapter and potentially making this chapter and the next Ned chapter two two separate chapters as opposed to one combined chapter. So it's always fascinating to look at George's style in writing and how one of the things that George does when he writes his 
books is that at the very end of the story, he goes back and he reads through and does edits as he's going through the entire book. So if he finds that he has a character that he really wants to introduce or set some significant groundwork for, he'll bring them up earlier before they're even brought onto the scene here. So of course, as you guys all know, Bruce Bolton is not brought up until he's at, I want to say, does he, he shows up at Winterfell, right? In Bran's fifth chapter? Yeah, I think it's Bran's sixth chapter. He very, he's mentioned a couple times briefly as being one of the bannermen Rob summons with this grisly little detail. Rob says, Lord, like, I think it's like Lord Roos never says anything. He just looks at me and I think about that room in the dread fort where they hang the skins (laughs) of their enemies. And as a first time reader, you're like, wait, what was that? (laughs) Go back. What did you just say, Rob? They do what? Record scratch. So at at that point, Yes, Gurm, George R. R. Martin clearly has in mind who Rose Bolton is and what he's all about. But I think that's a very good point you make, that once Martin decided that and decided Bruce was going to be a big deal and even the one to personally kill Rob, that he decided, you know what, I better go back and sprinkle his name in here just to emphasize that he's an asshole and likes <laughs> killing people. To just kind of plant that seed in the audience's minds. Because it does come out of nowhere. And like I said, there's no kind of there's no other establishment of Roos being at the front lines during Robert's Rebellion. So no. this this does seem like an isolated little detail. I think you're right about that. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating little detail, and it always just keep it keep in mind as, as you're reading through all of the books, regardless of if, if it's a Game of Thrones or a Dance with Dragons, that some of the things that you might read in earlier chapters, take a look at, see if like it it, it feeds into things that are going to be happening later in the books, references to Roose Bolton to House Frey and their treacherous natures we see in Catelyn 5 feed into the Red Wedding and the phrase ending up betraying Robb Stark in A Storm of Swords. But getting back to this chapter itself, I think it's a fascinating argument between Ned and Robert because Ned's point of view is that they went to war to save the lives of children. They rose against Aerys Targaryen because Aerys had called for Eris had murdered Brandon Squires, as well as called for Ned's death, as well as Robert's. But Robert's point of view about about his own rebellion is radically different from Ned's point of view. And it's it's kind of a subtle difference, but it's extraordinarily radical. Yeah, when Ned says, you know, why did we rise against Eris if not to put an end to the murder of children? Robert's response, to get rid of Targaryens. <laughs> God damn it, Bobby B. That's just the <laughs> wrong answer in so many ways. And that's just such a crushing answer for Ned. To hear that all this was about for Robert was getting rid of that one family. There's right. no higher cause, no higher values, no ideology, no honor, no no meaning. Because that's meaningless, yeah. getting rid of just the Targaryens. Because if it's not connected to your behavior, then there's nothing stopping you from being as bad or worse than Eris. Exactly. There's nothing making it meaningful. It's rooted in revenge, which is something that Ned pretty consistently doesn't care about at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, it... it retroactively justifies the murder of Rhaegar's children, which of course is what led Ned and Robert to have their first big falling out when Ned decried that. And Robert said, I see no babes, only dragon spawn. Yeah. And of, and of course what John, what Robert is saying there that he's just, uh, this is a personal vendetta between him and house Targaryen. That would also justify the murder of John. Right. And as many people have pointed out, that is the subconscious thread running underneath this entire scene from Ned's POV is Robert yelling about how he wants to kill this Targaryen child and get rid of all of House Targaryen. They're all just dragon spawn. That's just a nightmare for Ned because he have, has, of course, been keeping a half Targaryen kid secret <laughs> at Winterfell ever since Robert's Rebellion. So now he's looking at proof that the king he fought for would murder his nephew. 
Yeah. What, what a just what a horrific realization that is for Ned, for Ned. This just sensation that it was all for a lie. It was all for this to to quote the show. Uh, you know, obvi- <laughs> obviously we don't believe that as we made clear, but in this moment, Ned feels that way. Like this is just such a huge disillusionment for him, and it's it's deeply connected to not only his own uh, personal values and ideals, but to his own family, to his own nephew that he's been keeping safe and. And now Robert is unknowingly becoming that threat. He's becoming the heiress to John's Ned in that scenario. He's becoming the Mad King threatening the murder of children. Unlike the other counselors, Ned just can't let that fly. Yeah, I mean, it really makes that whole statement that Robert says back in the last chapter. Tell me that I'm better than than heiress and be done with it. Just so tragically fucking sad. And that we're just again, left with the perspective that Robert is not better than Aerys Targaryen, that Robert is willing to order the deaths of children if it satiates his need for vengeance or his need to see violence dealt out to folks that he considers to be enemies, even if they're 13-year-old kids. I mean, I think that's always the something to keep in mind when Robert orders the death of Daenerys Targaryen. She's 13 years old and she's she's pregnant. Her child has not even been born yet. And, you know, of, of course, we're going to talk about this a little bit in some depth later on, but it, I, I do feel like that Robert's statement that we rose up to put an end to Targaryens, to get rid of Targaryens, does trigger his subconscious in a way that he does think of John, not by name, because, of course, that would be bad storytelling, but in such a way that it does lead Ned to have these intense emotional memories of keeping secrets and what it means to keep secrets. But I will save the, the line share of, of, of my, uh, my arguments for that in, in a little bit. Um, it, it, you know what, what's uh, so freaking awful about this is that Ned and Barrison to a lesser extent are the only ones who are standing aside or, or standing against Robert and letting him know that what you're doing is an awful immoral deed, but everyone else they're okay with killing children. They're okay with it for various reasons. Yeah, that's where this starts moving beyond just a critique of Robert personally and his bloodlust against the Targaryens personally, and starts being a more kind of systemic institutional critique of, of Westeros' current government, mm-hmm. that everyone is on board with this, that every kind of little department of government, so to speak, is giving the king cover on this. Uh, Varys is, of course, being his usual disingenuous performative self He's got his own plan cooking, but in the moment, he's just saying, we have no choice, murmured Varys, sadly, sadly, you know, with his, his usual crocodile tear shtick. Uh, Renly, as we said, just doesn't seem to care about any of this. Uh, he says, she must be killed, Lord Renly declared, simple as that. Not even any kind of struggle or agony with that, because Renly's a shallow dude who doesn't think anything through, as per usual. <laughs> uh, Littlefinger is, is that, but even worse, as he has his whole line, which is just such a... Such an appalling, cruel metaphor that it's yeah. just difficult for me to even read it. When you find yourself in bed with an ugly woman, the best thing to do is close your eyes and get on with it, he declared. Waiting won't make the maid any prettier. Kiss her and be done with it. <laughs> like, that's just, first of all, you're just this hideous metaphor between sex and murder, which is, is that's a symbolic association that, of course, Martin and Martin's not alone in this draws many times throughout the series, sex and swordplay, to borrow from Jamie. Uh, but generally speaking, the people who directly make that metaphor are assholes. Yeah. And little, Littlefinger is, you know, the prime example of that. That this is just, 
why would you bring up sex in this moment? Or, like, even reluctant sex? Why would you bring up sex in a way where you're just being mean to this random woman? Who, by the way, when he talks to himself about being in bed with an ugly woman and just having to get it over with, I wonder if he might be talking about Lysa there. Because that's exactly what happens in Storm of Swords. You know, she, yeah. she shows up and has to marry him immediately, and there's that cringeworthy scene where... Lysa's screaming during their sex and Sanchez just like hunching her shoulders down going, oh my God. <laughs> um, I can't believe I have to listen to this. So I, I wonder if he's directly thinking about Lysa, which is just, I mean, Littlefinger's and Lysa's relationship is such a wretched, horrible thing just in general. But just, oh, what an appalling thing to say on so many levels. And y- your heart's got to be with Barristan when he just says, kiss her, all like shocked and horrified. And of course, that's partially just, you know, Barristan being a virgin. But it's it's just... <laughs> It's also just like what a what a gross, shallow, again, superficial like Renly, but also just going worse than that to make this really kind of disgusting image and then to just shrug it off as a steel kiss, which is just like such a such a dumb metaphor. It's just uh I don't like this dude. Have I made that clear? I really don't like Peter Baelish, even beyond considering him evil on like a overall big picture level, just as a person in conversation. He just gets under my skin, man. He's the fucking worst, man. I I, I totally agree. And I, I still, and I, I think we brought this up in several epi- in several episodes. You just kind of scratch your head and go, when George says that you know Littlefinger is unthreatening, he's harmless because he's everyone's friend. And I read this small council scene, and Littlefinger is just like he's not everyone's friend. I mean, he's very obviously being. A just complete, total fucking douchebag. And even Barristan like calls him out on it. So when like George says stuff like, oh, well, Littlefinger is like, he just, he doesn't translate well between page and, and screen because, you know, in the books, he's, he's much more subtle and he's, you know, he's everybody's friend. I'm just like, George, you gotta, you gotta take a look at like your character that you're crafting here and realize that you've even written it on the page that a character like Barristan is horrified and rightfully horrified that Littlefinger would be talking this way. And we don't get the reactions of, of the other counselors there, but I, I just don't, can't imagine like even like Robert in this moment being like, eh, okay, that's cool. Just, just get on with it. I, I, yeah, mean, I mean, no one's laughing. No, no one's right. like, oh, that was a clever quip, Lord Peter. Like, it's not. He's not, like, taken over the room with his charisma and his charm. And it reminds me of lazy Leo Terrell in the yeah. prologue to A Feast for Crows when he's just being a dick, but no one can say anything to him because he's armored in gold. In a different way, that little finger is armored in gold, but still the same way. Yeah, I agree. We've talked about this line before. I think it's less that everyone likes Littlefinger and more that everyone is counting on Littlefinger. Right. You know, he's he's got his hands in, in every pocket, so I think they just kind of have to deal with him. Which is a different kind of thing. But yeah, it's that, that's just hideously obnoxious. But um, the, the next counselor is, is Pycelle, who, to give him some credit, actually makes an argument, which Renly and Littlefinger are not bothering to do. Uh, he says, quote, My order serves the realm, not the ruler. Once I counseled King Eris as loyally as I counsel King Robert now. <laughs> we'll get back to that. <laughs> so I bear this girl child of his no ill will. Yet I ask you this. Should war come again? How many soldiers will die? How many towns will burn? How many children will be ripped from their mothers to perish on the end of a spear? He stroked his luxuriant white beard, <laughs> infinitely sad, infinitely weary. I love this. I love how Martin shows how pretentious Pycelle is. Yeah. Is it not, is it not wiser, even kinder, that Daenerys Targaryen should die now so that tens of thousands might live? Okay, so look, again, at least this is some kind of logic. Sure. It's not logic I agree with, but at least it's something other than just, yeah, kill her, ugly woman, still kiss, woo! <laughs> It's, it's, at least it's something. 
But as we said earlier, of course, Martin proves this wrong by showing that war was not coming again until Robert authorized this assassination attempt. So Pycelle yeah. is dead wrong on the facts. It also is undercut by, as we learn later, he counseled Eris to open <laughs> King's Landing gates to Tywin Lannister, which led to the sack of King's Landing, a.k.a. a town burning, soldiers dying, and children ripped from their mothers to perish on the end of a spear, all that horrible stuff. Pycelle helped make that happen in order to get Tywin Lannister on the throne. So he's actually fine with that. Sure. And if, what really undercuts it is, of course, that wonderfully written line, once I counseled King Eris as loyally as I counsel King Robert now. <laughs> That's not a lie, but it's only not a lie because he's not loyal to either of them. Right. So that line alone just indicates that even, even though Pycelle has at least a utilitarian basis for what he's saying here, that really we shouldn't be taking him seriously. And he's just, again, he's just stroking his beard, so sad, so weary. He's just kind of a pretentious fop who is, is not nearly as smart as he would like to think he is. So not while yet. I give him, I guess, I give him like like half a gold star, more credit than Renly or Littlefinger, but that is it. Yeah, you're, you're right about that. But I think we see like the proto-Tywin Lannister argument about the Red Wedding here that we see, that we see in A Storm of Swords, where Tywin Lannister's point to Tyrion, which is... I will say this up front, it's complete, utter fucking bullshit, is that it is, is it more noble to kill a dozen men at dinner than a thousand men on the battlefield? Tell me, Lord Tyrion, tell me, is that actually like the, is that what you would prefer? Well, of course, Tywin Lannister is full of shit because it was not a dozen men at dinner. It was thousands of Northmen and thousands of Riverlanders that died due to Frey and Bolton treachery at, at the twins at the Red Wedding. But I do think it is fascinating and interesting to see Pycelle as the Tywin toady in the small council and as the person who is only really out for the benefit of House Lannister, make an argument that we do see Tywin Lannister make much more explicit, maybe not much more explicit because Tywin, because Pycelle is pretty explicit here, but make the sim- make a similar argument that Tywin makes in A Storm of Swords. That's a great parallel you made there between uh, Pycelle and Tywin, which of course makes sense because as you say, Pycelle is, is Tywin's toady and his, his mole on the small council, although not very effectively really, which is something we're going to have to... <laughs> Uh, take note of as we go. Yes. Uh, but yeah, and, and as you also say correctly, Tywin's argument is nonsense, and that needs to be underscored. Nonsense. The yes. amount of people who quote Tywin's line there approvingly in the fandom, like it's some great pearl of wisdom that should be taken at face value, that kind of drives me crazy because it, yeah. no, it's ridiculous. Tywin murdered thousands of people at the Red Wedding, even in the room, even the nobles, considerably more than a dozen people died. Yep. And in this, with the same fallout that we see emphasized here. Just as we said, Robert actually creates the threat by with his assassination attempt against Daenerys. The Red Wedding in no way ends the war. Nope. And it, it doesn't end the war precisely because of how hideous and taboo-breaking and just brutal it is. It leads to the northern vassals, who might have otherwise reluctantly bent the knee. It leads to them leading this kind of multi-headed conspiracy to sure. overthrow the Lannisters and to back Stannis or to back Rickon, but anyone but the Lannisters, anyone but the Freys. Right. It, it produces the character of Lady Stoneheart, who is, as well as being undead Catelyn, is also kind of an avatar of nemesis and vengeance trying to get revenge for the Red Wedding. And she wouldn't exist without the Red Wedding as a as something to react against. Yeah. And, you know, we're going to see kind of the full fruits of that in The Winds of Winter. But really, the Red Wedding solved nothing in just the same way that uh, killing Daenerys would solve nothing. So exactly. I think that's a wonderfully, wonderful kind of association between Pycelle and Tywin's arguments. Not just that their arguments are the same, but that they're wrong in the same way. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. 
But, you know, you have your Picels, you have your Little Fingers, you have your Renlies. But there is one character, as we talked about previously in our episode about him himself, and that is the character of Barristan Selmy, who does stand with Ned Stark here and does stand against the murder of children and tells Robert that he supports Ned Stark's position in all of this. Yes, indeed. And I do give Barristan, I gave Pycelle half a gold star. I'll give Barristan like 90% of a gold star <laughs> from being very technical and mathematical about this. Because, yeah, he says, and this is a great, wonderfully true thing to say. Your grace, there is honor in facing an enemy on the battlefield, but none in killing him in his mother's womb. Forgive me, but I must stand with Lord Eddard. And, and credit, he's cutting right through all those kind of pontificating arguments Pycelle was making to say, no, it doesn't matter what you think your justification is. This is just hideous, and there's there's no possible honor in this at all. Yeah. The thing is, though, that's it. Barris, that's all Barristan does. He yeah. doesn't walk away. He doesn't stop Robert. He holds on to his position as Lord Commander of the Kingsguard because... That's what he loves. That's what defines himself. And he only when Joffrey kicks him out, only when that is taken away from him, does he fly to Daenerys' side to protect her from all threats. And, you know, to give Barristan credit, he does acknowledge how kind of shallow and kind of hypocritical that is of him yeah. uh, when he gets to Daenerys and kind of admits, like, I, you know, I really was blind to what happened until Joffrey stripped me of, of my, my cloak. I think what we're seeing here is the kind of the, there is a limit to how useful Barristan can be in this situation. As much as I can admire what he's saying, it's not actually having any kind of impact. He's not willing to do what Ned does and, and walk away and give up his power, give up his part in this. Barristan still has blood on his hands by association yeah. in the same way that these other counselors do, even if he's much less on board with it, morally speaking. Yeah, you know, in that in our episode about the fate of the White Knight, I compared Barristan to the old conservative German military, the leaders who didn't like Hitler, who didn't like Nazism, who were not in favor of the final solution, but still didn't do anything about that. And they might, Barristan here says the right things, but unlike Ned, he puts no action into his words. What Barristan does in effect is give lip service to the idea that it is worth that the lives of children are worth perceiving are, are worth perceiving are worth saving, but that's it. I mean, and I, and I, as much as I want to give him a 90% gold star, like you, I, I kind of feel like that I want to give him only like a quarter of a gold star, like, like Picel. at least Picel's okay. argument is legitimate. That's interesting. And, okay. and true, but Barristan's and Barristan's argument is legitimate and true as well, but he puts no emphasis or action into it. He doesn't resign his Lord Commandership because, you know, one of the things that Varys says to Ned Stark in Eddard Seven is that Barristan loves his honor. Barristan loves his office. And that is what is defining Barristan as a character to the point where the only reason why he leaves the side of Joffrey is because he's dismissed. He doesn't participate in defending Ned Stark. When Ned Stark and his men come into the throne room at the end of A Game of Thrones, he stands aside. I think that's that's a, an important aspect of Sir Barristan Selmy is as much as you want to like him. And I really want to like him as a character because he his backstory is phenomenal and amazing and full of these heroic exploits and deeds. I can't admire him. And, I, and, and it saddens me that I can't admire him because... I can't admire someone who only gives lip service to the idea of saving the lives of innocents and doesn't put any action into it. He doesn't do anything beyond simply saying the right things 
and then letting bad deeds happen anyways. He's the guy that he's the good German. He's looking aside while while the country and the country in, in the form of Robert Baratheon in this in this case does awful, evil, and horrific deeds. And that's it's it's sad. It's really it's it, and I it's sad for me for Barrison that that that's my opinion about Barrison after five books in the series. But it's especially sad here because we want to like Barrison. Yeah, no, we want to like him in a way we never come close to even wanting to like Pycelle or Littlefinger. Right. So it, that does make it sad in a way that it's not with the other characters because you sense a potential for better that he's not acting on. And yeah, of course, the, you know, even more damning than what it does here is that he stood by during Eris's reign. Yeah. And as you said, watched and saw and did nothing. Yeah. What's interesting, and another parallel I didn't really think of until now, is that there was also a hand under Eris who just threw his hand pin down and walked and tried to walk away. Yeah. Rather than take part in it. One of the great, I think, minor unsung heroes of the story, Carlton Chelston, yeah. whom we know nothing about, was briefly Eris's hand, but as Jamie describes, found this courage. And when he learned about the wildfire plot, he begged Eris to do it. And when Eris begged Eris to not do it, <laughs> and when Eris refused him, he threw down the handpin and, of course, uh, burned for it. Yeah, that took some real, real courage. That in this moment, uh, Barrison doesn't find, and that Ned does with yeah. with his with his king determined to kill children, with his fellow counselors enabling that king, and with the rebellion that cost him just so much in ideological ruins, Ned Stark decides that the only right thing to do is to walk away. <laughs> and, and the quote is so perfectly written and sad and poignant. Ned unfastened the heavy clasp that clutched at the folds of his cloak, the ornate silver hand that was his badge of office. He laid it on the table in front of the king, saddened by the memory of the man who had pinned it on him, the friend he had loved. <laughs> I thought you a better man than this, Robert. I thought we had made a nobler king. Like, the anger is gone in that moment. Yeah. It's just, it's just sadness. It's just this deep well of despair of... I really thought we meant more, man. I really thought yeah. we had something serious, and we don't. I really thought you were worth more to me than this, and now that you're not, I can't be a part of it anymore. And you you got to admire that. It takes real courage to do what Ned just did, not only because, as he will point out later in the chapter, this might potentially put him in danger from Robert, but also because Ned is willing to admit to himself that it might have been for nothing. Yeah. That they might have just sat another heiress equivalent on the Iron Throne. That that takes real strength of character and spirit to stick to your beliefs like that. It's very easy not to. Like, I think of my favorite character, uh, Quentin, who has many things in common with Ned uh, in terms of, like, being kind of shy around girls and being, like, the quiet one in his relationships with other men. Uh, that whole, you know, he says, I never asked for this. Ned says, I never asked for this cup to pass to <laughs> me. There's There's a lot of similarities there, but... Uh, Quentin gives in completely to the sunk cost fallacy. Yeah. When he's, he's like, I gotta, even though his quest is obviously failing, he's like, I gotta keep going because my friends are dead. And if I go back now, it means they died for nothing. And Ned has the strength of character to say, no, even though it will mean potentially in my head that it was all for nothing, I can't be a part of this. Yeah. I have to take this stand. I have to stop. I have to walk away. And that's, you know, there's, there are several moments that kind of define Ned Stark morally in everyone's eyes. And this is one of them. Yes. This is, this is, this is something that people not just like him for, but admire him for. And for good reason. As silly as this is going to sound to me, this reads to me like a romantic relationship breakup right here between Absolutely. Robert and Ned. And Absolutely. You know, it's, it's giving up of the thing. I mean, <laughs> this is, this is extremely goofy, but... <laughs> remember, remember in high school how like 
your your girlfriend or boyfriend, whoever you was, you had like some sort of token of affection from them. Yeah. And like you like your letterman jacket or something like that. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And then Ned gives the clasp of his oath his oath of office or his letterman jacket back to back to his lover. Oh, and, that's great. Yeah. That's I, a great way or like or like an even more serious relationship, like like giving back an engagement. Oh right? yeah. I think that's that's actually much more meaningful. I think much more uh, and I, I don't know whether whether George intended this, but that's some, that's something that I came away with from this reading of of thinking that this is this is a breakup. I mean, it, it, it's sad. Yeah. I mean, we talked about how sad Barristan is as a character, but the real tragedy and the real sadness is found in the breakup between Robert and Ned, and that Ned has realized that the person that he fell in love with, if you want to keep with the metaphor is not the person who he turned out to be. Robert is not the man is, is not a noble King. He's not a good man. He is this, he's the same as you like your, this is awful. It's fucking awful. He's the same as your last boyfriend. He's the same as your last girlfriend. He's the the same shitty person that you ended up. Yeah. Yeah. Keeping up it's with like, yeah. Yeah. It is. It is a somewhat goofy and maybe inappropriate metaphor yeah. we're drawing here, but I, but I like it because Eris is, an abusive ex in yeah. that way. And Ned is like, oh, the, the pattern has been recreated. Yeah. I can't, I can't go on with that. I can't do this again. I have to get away from that. And Robert does take it very personally in that way where he's, he's just, you know, the way he's yelling at Ned in this moment is, is yeah, like, like, like he's being dumped. And yeah. I think that, I think that's definitely part of it. Um, and it, again, you got to give, Ned credit for not wanting to recreate that pattern. It's definitely a, a brave move and an admirable move. However, having said that, <laughs> on reread, I started thinking about this in a kind of a different way. Uh, given what Ned thinks to himself after he walks away from this council session, after he's given up his, his post, uh, the quote is, And there was the other matter, the business with Catalin and the dwarf that Yorin had warned him of last night. That would come to light soon, as sure as sunrise, and with the king in such a black fury... Robert might not care a fig for Tyrion Lannister, but it would touch on his pride, and there was no telling what the queen might do. Hmm. So let's think about this. Ned went into this council session with this significant advantage over the Lannisters. Yorin told him first. Ned knows about this before Cersei does, or Jaime, or Robert for that matter. And not only has he failed to use that advantage, he has given away the authority that he will need to defend his family from reprisals. Yeah. As we said during Catelyn 5, Catelyn did not in any way make this move thinking that Ned was going to give up the hand position. And that's that's something that's a rather crucial distinction, I think, because Martin will emphasize it a couple times when we get to the Lannister response to Catelyn's actions. Uh, when Jaime confronts Natalie in the streets, Ned in the streets, and Littlefinger says, what is the meaning of this? This is the hand of the king. He was the hand of the king. The mud muffled the hooves of the blood bay stallion. The line parted before him. On a golden breastplate, the Lion of Lannister roared its defiance. Mm. Now, if truth be told, I'm not sure what he is. And again, and, and Ned, that's, that's Eddard 9, and in Eddard 10, uh, when Robert and Cersei come to visit Ned as he's recovering, Cersei says, By what right do you dare lay hands on my blood? Cersei demanded, Who do you think you are? The Hand of the King, Ned told her with icy courtesy. Mm. Charged by your own lord husband to keep the king's peace and enforce the king's justice. So he's using his hand position as a defense for himself and Catelyn, saying, I'm permitted to do this, she's permitted to do this on my behalf, that's my position. But as Cersei says, you were the hand, yeah. Cersei began, but now... So, obviously, Jamie's a hothead, he might have attacked Ned anyway. Cersei is Cersei, she was going <laughs> to, you know, hate Ned for and Catelyn for doing this anyway. 
But I do think the fact that Martin brings this up a couple times implies that Ned has significantly weakened his hand, so to yeah. speak, <laughs> in terms of dealing with Catelyn and Tyrion. So that's that's kind of an interesting layer that as much as I admire Ned morally for the stand he's taken, he's actually kind of screwing over himself and his family's position here and making it harder for them to to work this out peacefully. And and if you want to just break it down purely to practicality, what did Nain, what did Ned gain in exchange for that? Giving up this advantage, giving up his position. Is Daenerys less likely to die because Ned defied Robert? No. No. Ned can't stop this. Ned's not getting in the way of this. The fact that he's forcing Robert to find a new hand will not prevent the assassination. As he says, as soon as he walks out the council session, the conversation resumes as if he had never been there. Yeah. And they, they, just, they just go on with the matter. Uh, so I think that's, that's an interesting kind of contrast. Again, I'm not saying that, aha, that means Ned was dumb to do this. Right. Like, he's not actually heroic. I still extremely admire Ned for his stand, and I'm very moved by that scene. But on reread, I started thinking about, you know, Ned, you maybe should have thought about, like, you know, express your anger at Robert, definitely get this across, but maybe hold on to the handpin for, like, literally another day. <laughs> So that if the Lannisters come at you about Catelyn and Tyrion, you still potentially have Robert on your side or the authority of your office to deal with it, then quit. I mean, you know, obviously if that went the way it did, we wouldn't have a Game of Thrones. We wouldn't have this right. story. But I do think Martin might have been trying to deliberately complicate Ned's moral righteousness here. Just my thought. No, you're absolutely right. What George loves to do in these settings and in these scenes is not present us with easy answers. And that's something we are going to talk about with at the end of this, this podcast as we'll Absolutely. be talking about um, the role of preserving the lives of innocents and especially children and how it functions in the story of A Song of Ice and Fire itself. So you're absolutely correct in that George isn't presenting George in that George is presenting a comp, a more complicated picture than killing children is bad. Ned is obviously right. Moving on, because what George loves loves to do and likes to do in these in, in a story sense is to give us some complexity, some ambiguity about whether Ned's actions were correct. And, I, and I'm with you 100 percent that Ned was absolutely 100 percent correct to give up the handpin and not take part in the murder of Daenerys and Viserys to speak against it in council session. And then when the decision was made that he would take no part in that, I think that is a 100 percent correct morally correct and practically correct decision too, but it does have consequences and those yes, consequences exactly. are going to be felt in the very next chapter where of course, Jamie attacks Ned Stark and his, well, more attacks Ned Stark's men than Ned Stark himself. But you know, Ned loses Jory Cassell in the next chapter, his trusted bodyguard that is captain of guards uh, of, of the Winterfell guard. And that's, Devastating. That's extraordinarily devastating to the the future of the story. And Jory is not there when Ned walks up to the to the Iron Throne. His best fighter is dead at that point in the story. Like I, I love the idea, not to spoil too much about what we're gonna talk about at the end, that as heroic and as great as Ned's actions are here, they are going to have significant and Ultimately, you can almost say fatal consequences to Ned Stark here. So what I talked about at the beginning of this, what I talked about a little bit before was about how pivotal this chapter was and that it does set the action in motion in King's Landing in a way that the first seven chapters, as much as they're great and they're build up, they are still build up. Here we're starting to get the action and this action then spills out into the next few Ned chapters here as well. But then, you know, it, 
I feel like we've been talking about this whole small council scene so much, but there is there is another part of this chapter too where where Littlefinger pops in for a little little chat with Ned and kind of lets him know about what's going on and about this one last opportunity that Ned has to go and visit the brothel that Jory has been trying to find. And I do that's one of those things where I where I, I do kind of question Ned's decision because he has made it clear that he is planning on getting the fuck out of Dodge. He is planning to take his kids and run because he doesn't believe that Robert's a just man anymore. So why, why, why does he go with Littlefinger at the end of this chapter? Or actually, not in the end of this chapter, but in the next chapter. He accepts Littlefinger's offer from the end of this chapter to visit this brothel in order to investigate more of Robert's bastards. Why does he do that? It, It still kind of boggles my mind. As much as I love Ned and believe that he's not an idiot, this is one of those kind of decisions that I just kind of scratch my head about just so much. Yeah, that's perfectly fair. I mean, I think Martin is trying to set it up by having Ned say to himself that, oh, I'm leaving, but I really hate to have left the murder of John Aaron unsolved. Right. So it's clearly still digging at him, but there's no indication that like going to this brothel is going to blow that case wide open. It's not like Littlefinger saying, ah, stay an extra night and I'll help you reveal who John Aaron's murderer was and, ha- and I give you the proof. Like, it's just one more piece of the puzzle. Right. It does seem kind of weird that Ned is is sticking around for that reason. Like, he even says to himself that he's going to be leaving along with his daughters and that the household's going to have to catch up. Like, he, he could just as easily have Jory stay behind. Yeah. And do that investigation for him. So it is a little, it is a little weird. This, this, this final scene is kind of abrupt with Littlefinger. Yeah, on reread, like, this is really kind of the nail in the coffin for Ned. Because, of course, after this, he'll get attacked in the streets along with his men. And then his leg gets injured and then he really can't leave. Yeah. And then he, of course, finds out the truth about the twin cest and wants to stick around to see that done. And that's, of course, what leads directly to his downfall. So he almost gets out the door and then Littlefinger stops him. And you can see Martin kind of setting the groundwork for how tragic that is by having Ned think about, oh, I want to go home and have those those cool days and cold nights and, you know, see Rob practicing his sword play. And the really heartbreaking one is, you know, maybe we could I can make another <laughs> son with Catelyn. Because Catelyn has brought that up a couple times, too, like in her second chapter when they're just having sex and Catelyn hopes that his seed will quicken. Yeah. Uh, that they want another kid. And that's really sad to think about, man, because they're not that old. Yeah. It's easy to forget that, they're, you know, mid-30s, like, yeah, feudal world, that's definitely closer to death than in our times. But still, yeah. young young enough young enough to have another kid. And that's that's just that's just a real sad uh, AU that's not going to happen. But, um, yeah, Littlefinger shows up and is... Has this smarm about how he really did more good for Danny than Ned did. And so to be clear, when I'm talking about Ned maybe having not really thought this through, I'm not taking Littlefinger's side here. <laughs> because when he says, you know, oh, that they were going to send a faceless man, and I argued against that. So now they're going to send some, you know, sellsword who will probably screw it up. So really, I, I did more to help Danny than you did. <laughs> and Ned points out, you really expect me to believe that after you were just like talking about your stupid steel kiss metaphor? In council, you expect him to believe you were trying to defend her? And yeah, he's exactly right. There's never been any indication that Littlefinger is secretly on Danny's side. Right. Or cares about defending her life. He's just being a snarky douchebag to Ned about this. He's mm-hmm. just playing semantics to get under Ned's skin. Again, it's just... I have just such difficulty getting through Littlefinger dialogue scenes because I just want to punch him in the face. I mean, who doesn't want to punch Littlefinger in the face? I mean, it's, True. There's, there's no... There's no reason why Ned should be trusting Littlefinger at this point. Littlefinger has demonstrated how untrustworthy and how evil he is as a character before he puts a knife to Ned Stark's throat at the end of A Game of Thrones. But Ned listens to Littlefinger, decides he's going to go to the brothel one last time, 
And we'll pick that up in two weeks from now because that is, again, I keep saying this. I keep fucking saying this. It's one of my favorite chapters in A Game of Thrones where Ned confronts Jamie Lannister outside the brothel in King's Landing. But I think that about takes us to our likes and dislikes for the chapter. So, Emmett, what did you like about this chapter? What did you dislike about this chapter? Uh, something I liked is this little moment you brought up in your synopsis where Varys brings up the tears of Lys and uh, Pycelle, like, like wakes up <laughs> at that moment. <laughs> Like, his eyes flicker, and he starts squinting at Varys and, like, suggesting that he thinks maybe the spider is involved somehow with Jon Arryn's death or knows something about it. And it's a nice way to emphasize that despite his reputation as an intellectual, the Grand Maester is always barking up the wrong tree. (laughs) Uh, Because, of course, Varys had nothing to do with that. And if he knows about it, it's only in a very kind of passive, hands-off kind of way. Uh, And it's also a good way to misdirect the audience, because if you're a close reader your first time through, you might see that and go, aha! This is clearly a clue of some importance. Maybe Varus was involved somehow, and you know, it's 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 not him, and it's not even the Lannisters, of course. Who, as we learn later, it was Lysa and Littlefinger. But yeah, it's 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 a it's a nice little character moment and a nice little misdirect, I think. Yeah, George loves his, his red herrings of of sprinkling yes. them through the text and allowing readers to make the wrong to make the wrong conclusion about different and various events in, in A Song of Ice and Fire. And nothing is more sprinkled with red herrings than who actually killed John Aaron, uh, because Varys is seen. I mean, we even saw it in the in the last Arya chapter where you get the impression if one hand can die, why not another? Where you're like, ah, Varys was responsible for John Aaron's death and he's playing Ned Stark false. And then you kind of get it reemphasized here with Pycelle being like, wait a minute, the tears of ice. I'm awake now. I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I'm, I'm awake. I'm ready. But, you know, I also think, too, it could be that I and I, and I, and I love your your analysis and, and theorizing about what what is motivating Pycelle here. But it could be, too, that Pycelle is upset about Vara's potentially pointing to Cersei as the poisoner, given what we find out uh, okay. from mm-hmm. from Pycelle in, in uh, Tyrion 6 from A Clash of Kings, where Pycelle is being interrogated by Shaga and Tyrion. And he's like whimpering and he says, the queen needed Lord Aaron death. She could not say so. So she could not. Varys was listening, always listening. But when I looked at her, I knew. And uh, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's always possible that, again, as I think we talked about in, in earlier analyses, that that was kind of retconned into A Clash of Kings to give some reason and meaning behind all of the suspicion that is being cast Cersei's way, that it was a kind of a false breadcrumb trail and that Pycelle believed that Cersei was actually responsible for John Aaron's death. So he did his best to ensure that John Aaron actually died as opposed to treating him and dismissing Maester Coleman from, uh, from, from John Aaron's service. But, you know, uh, different interpretations. And it could be this, the same thing too, where maybe Pycelle is like, wait a minute, did Cersei tell Varys to kill Jon Arryn? Like, wow, that just blew my fucking mind. You know, I mean, there's there's all sorts of pies, there's all sorts of pieselities, all sorts of uh, possibilities <laughs> about what's uh, what's what's it's, what's going on in Pycelle's mind in this moment. No, that's a very good point, sir. I had forgotten about that line in, in Tyrion 6, A Clash of Kings. That's going to be a fun scene when we get to that. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm, can't say how much I'm looking forward to the Tyrion chapters in Clash. If you haven't listened to the uh, podcast, the Close the Door podcast, they do. They do excellent work in general, but they've uh, they've specifically done some uh, real good work on going through Tyrion's Clash of Kings chapters. Uh, so I highly recommend those. Moving on to my dislike for the chapter, and we've basically kind of alluded to this already. You may have noticed that <laughs> while this chapter is cut in half between the council scene and the aftermath, we spent ninety five percent of our time talking about the council scene. <laughs> And the trade-off for starting this chapter off in such a dramatic fashion is that it kind of loses steam as it goes, 
And a lot of my favorite chapters in the series are just steadily building crescendos where everything just gets more and more intense or weird or, you know, horrifying, whatever the mood is. And this chapter is more kind of a decrescendo. And the, 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 not that the back half of the chapter is bad. No. It just can't compare it to the front half. No, so when we talk about this chapter, when we remember it, we're always thinking of the council scene. And the aftermath is just kind of that, just the aftermath. No, I mean, that's, that's perfectly put. You know, we're... As you said, we we spend 95% of our time, you know, talking about how tragic and sad this whole scene is. And, you know, the ending scene is, is, is fine. I mean, it's not bad, like you say, but it doesn't pack the same emotional punch that the early part of this chapter does. I mean, the Littlefinger Ned conversation kind of repeats themes that we saw in, in Eddard 5 and Eddard 6, where Littlefinger is sowing discord and, and sowing different misdirection in, in Ned Stark's way. And, you know, it, it's, it's not bad to repeat the, the motif necessarily, but it is less dramatic because it's, we're seeing this for the third or fourth time at this point in the story. So we're like, okay, well, Littlefinger's going to come in and say something shitty and Ned's going to be upset about it. And Littlefinger's going to say, ah, well, I have a clue for your investigation and we're going to go on to the next chapter. And of course, this time around, the next chapter is going to be fucking awesome. But, you know, at the same time, you know, we're, this is just not as good as the first part of this chapter. I mean, I like it, but it's, it's, I mean, the first part of this chapter is fabulous. It's, it's some of the best dialogue, some of the best emotional stakes we find so far in a Game of Thrones. So not, not a criticism of the latter part of the chapter, more of an emphasis on how great the first part of this chapter is. Well put, sir. I couldn't agree more. Now, what about you, Jeff? What did you like and dislike about Eddard 8, a Game of Thrones? So my like, I think we're going to agree about this. <laughs> Can I talk for just a second, just a second about how much of a shit Renly is about all of this? I mean, yeah, sure. Littlefinger is awful, but we know he's awful. But there's no like, oh, ambiguity is Ren is, is Littlefinger a good guy or not? He's not a good guy. We know this. We've known this from the beginning. Renly's whole shtick is that he's actually a good guy. He's a noble man at heart. And yet he's shrugging off murdering children, talking about mercy as a folly and finishing up with she must be killed. Now, I think this is really great on George's part. If we think about Renly as modeling himself on a younger version of Robert, it, it kind of makes sense why Renly is saying the things that he's doing. What did Robert say when Tywin presented the bodies of Aegon and Reigns to him? Quote, I see no babes, only dragon spawn. So Renly reads to me very Robert-esque in this chapter, but it does kind of belie the perception that he's attempting to present to all of the people of Westeros of being an actual, just a good guy. Because he's not a good guy. He's actually a shitty, he's as shitty as Littlefinger is in these small council sessions. And in these small council sessions, I think we're getting a truer version of Renly than the one that is presented for popular perception, as we see in later in the Game of Thrones, as well as the Clash of Kings. Oh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. This is what Renly's like when the crowds are not watching. Yeah. When it's just his fellow powerful cynics and there's no one to judge him. This, Yeah, this is how Renly genuinely behaves. Uh, and yeah, I think, it, I think that gets at what I don't like about Renly is that kind of two-facedness as compared to how Stannis would be described in his introductory scene that he never learned to flatter or dissemble <laughs> and just said what he meant and let it be, you know, if you don't like it, you'll be damned. Yes. Uh, so that's why Stannis and Renly don't get along, of course. And I understand, of course, that sometimes you need to flatter and you need to wheedle people, but Renly takes it to an extent where I think you can't really trust anything he says. Right. Because he's, uh, he's, he's always going to have another face lying underneath, so to speak. And yeah, I think that scene gets to the cross well, that he's not even agonizing, he's not even pretending, a, not even a BS argument like the one Pycelle presents. Yeah. He's just saying it. 
she must be killed. We should have had her killed a long time ago. Like, what, when you were a kid, Rinley? Yeah. Like you, you know, this, yeah. So I agree. I think Martin effectively communicates the way Renly is behaving, not just like a young Robert, but as you say, specifically the young Robert who dismissed the murder of Rhaegar's children. Yeah. I think that's a good comparison. No, yeah. there's there's also like the point too, and this, this just came to me, that Renly is very much playing the crowd, so to speak, here. He knows that Robert, Varys, Pycelle, and Littlefinger are all in favor of murdering these kids. And he's only got Ned and Barristan who's, who are in opposition. So Renly's part of Renly's point in in Clash of Kings is he has the larger army, he has the support of the people and the love of the people, so he's always playing to the crowd. And here I think we also get a sense too that he's playing to Robert. He's showing Robert that he's fully in support of what whatever Robert wants to do is is fine, it's great. It's fine even if it is actually a morally evil and nefarious thing that 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 Robert is doing. So so that's all about Renly. We've got a whole lot more about to say about Renly here in the next few months and years to come. Uh, my my dislike about this chapter, and this isn't a really a dislike per se, and I alluded to it in in Emmett's actual excellent depth part of this chapter. But this chapter is is relatively short. So my suspicion is that at some point, Eddard 8 and Eddard 9 were just one chapter before George expanded out of it, perhaps adding in the, the Roose Bolton stuff, and maybe even adding in the Littlefinger Eddard scene to act as a bridge into Eddard 9, and then inserting the Catelyn chapter in between these two Ned chapters in order to give kind of a break from the action, show us Catelyn and another side of, of Westeros and another side of action, because of course this next Catelyn chapter is her climbing is, is her climbing up to the Eyrie, and uh, it's a, kind of this harrowing chapter, it's, it's great. But I, I do feel like this chapter is short and is potentially intentionally short as a result of Martin kind of doing this cutting and weaving in terms of writing and kind of writing out, you know, Eddard 8 and Eddard 9 as one chapter before dividing them. And that is something that we we see in, in Martin's work, too. It might not be that they were one chapter at one point, but but George has said in the past that he tends to write from one point of view before running out of steam and then switching to another point of view. So you can easily see Eddard 8 being written very quickly and then transitioning immediately to Eddard 9, Eddard 10, perhaps even Eddard 11, before going back and writing uh, more Catelyn, Tyrion, John, and Daenerys chapters in between. So, I, I it's, again, it's not a criticism, really, because I really, really like this chapter a whole lot. But I, I do think it's it's important to, to recognize that this chapter is short, and it might have been short for a reason. Yeah, that's a good point, sir, especially about Martin's tendency to just write whole POV arcs until he loses interest or finishes and then move on to another one, and then kind of maybe go back and chop it up into chapters and form the structure of the book later. That might be what happened here, especially given how close Eddard 8 and Eddard 9 are within the book. There's only one chapter between them, Catalan 6. Yep. Uh, Martin has yet to ever do two chapters in a row from the same POV. The closest he ever gets is, in, is situations like that. Uh, yeah. when it's just only one chapter separating them. So that might indicate that these were basically one chapter in his mind at, at one at one point, and he, he ended up separating them, but not by much. Yeah, agreed, agreed. So I think that takes us to our foreshadowing groundwork part of this podcast. And there's a number of great little hints here. We did kind of brush through it in terms of our analysis of it, but there is a bit of hinting here that Littlefinger was the one truly responsible for John Aaron's death. And the quote is, and the truth of John Aaron's death still eluded Ned Stark. Oh, he had found a few pieces, enough to convince him that John had indeed been murdered. But that was no more than the spore of an animal on the forest floor. He had not sighted the beast itself yet, though he sensed it was there, lurking, hidden, treacherous. 
How terrific then is that, like, just like four paragraphs later, Littlefinger, who is nearby, lurking, hidden, and of course, treacherous, as we're going to find out, enters Ned Stark's solar and presents him with the idea that he can go investigate one final brothel and figure something out about Robert's kids and about something about John Aaron's death. I think that's Martin winking at the rereader who has read through a storm of swords at that point, that Littlefinger was the one who was truly responsible for John Aaron's death. Yeah, I think that's a great catch. It reminds me of when Tyrion is talking to Littlefinger about how he plans to uh, make peace with the Vale, and he says that he intends to uh, give Lysa the, the name of John Aaron's true killer. And Littlefinger says, the true killer, <laughs> I confess, you have me interested. <laughs> it's like the, the I confess just thrown in there, just so you can yes. catch it on reread. Uh, which is just a wonderful little touch. So yeah, I agree. It's Ned's thinking to himself, I don't understand this. Who, who killed John Aaron? Who was it? Oh, hello, Littlefinger. Anyway, who just, who was it? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a, great, that's a great little structure on Martin's part and a, and a wonderful little piece of foreshadowing. Again, like you say, impossible to catch on the first read, but once you go back knowing the truth, uh, it definitely stands out. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of the longstanding mysteries of A Song of Ice and Fire, we have a little bit of hinting at R plus L equals J here. As we were saying earlier, it's almost certainly the case that Ned's love for and fears for John are kind of running underneath his thoughts throughout this chapter as Robert is threatening Targaryen children. So when Ned is thinking to himself about, you know, if I find out the secret from Stannis about what's going on here, what do I even do with that? And he says to himself, yeah. some secrets are safer kept hidden. Some secrets are too dangerous to share, even with those you love and trust. Well, what secrets are you talking about? Maybe the secrets he's <laughs> been keeping, the lies he's been keeping, as he said to himself in an earlier chapter. And of course, he's probably thinking about Jon Snow's parentage, about the truth about Rhaegar and Lyanna, and out about how he's, you know, not only had to keep that from Jon, but also from Catelyn and from Robert yeah. and from the, the realm as a whole. Uh, and, you know, he's that's come at a cost to his marriage and his kind of mental health as a whole, I would say. But as he says to himself, it's it's it's, it's too dangerous to share because of exactly what Robert displayed in that earlier scene. The, the danger that would come to John's life if the truth were told. And um, I think it's interesting that he's comparing that secret to the secret that Stannis is holding on to because they're both about parentage. Uh, Stannis yeah. is holding on to the secret of the twincest and uh, Joffrey and Tommen and Marcella's parentage. And Ned is holding on to the secret of John's parentage. So I think that that's an interesting kind of multi-layered parallel that Martin is setting up there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what Robert says in the small council session, in my mind, reinforces Ned's decision to keep John's identity hidden and a secret and to claim John as his own. And, you know, it, it does speak to, to Ned's inner and outer nobility and that he is willing to take on the shame and the dishonor of holding a bastard and of having a bastard and raising a bastard as his own, even if this child isn't actually of his own seed necessarily, obviously of his blood, as which is a point that Ned makes later in the Game of Thrones, where he talks of Ned as of his blood, well, actually earlier in the Game of Thrones to, to Catelyn uh, in Catelyn's second chapter, uh, that, that John is... Obviously related to Ned Stark as being his nephew, but it's not necessarily his his actual son. So I, I think it reinforces the point that he was correct in preserving the life of John and and holding John as his own and, and claiming John as Jon Snow as opposed to John, the son of Rhaegar and Lyanna. Fascinating little hint that George embeds into this chapter and it does stick out on reread, especially. I think like that for us and the first time through, you know, the same thing kind of when we were talking about the little finger hint about him being the one behind John Aaron's death. When we go through and we're rereading this chapter, we do see George embedding the necessary groundwork for his reveal that Jon Snow is not actually Ned Stark's son, but is actually instead the son of Rhaegar and Lyanna. 
Yes, well, well, not letting you realize that that's what he's doing on first blush, which, yeah, is the difficult part. The, the really art of it is, you know, making a sentence like that that stands out really obviously once you know about R plus L equals J, once you're rereading the chapter. But the first time through, you're, that's not even where your focus is. You're not even analyzing a sentence like that for its possible deeper meaning. So that's, that's, that's a really delicate art and one he does well. But then we also get a little bit more Ned Stark death foreshadowing here, too, in Littlefinger... <laughs> Of course, Littlefinger doing his Littlefinger thing and saying all these sort of sorts of rotten, awful things to Ned Stark, where he says, quote, and he says this to Ned, quote, you rule like a man dancing on rotten ice. I dare say you will make a noble splash. I believe I heard the first crack this morning. Well, that's pretty much telling us what is going to happen to Ned Stark and that this is the first real chink in Ned Stark's armor in King's Landing and that he is dismissed or that he gives that he resigns his handship and this allows Jamie Lannister to confront him in the streets of King's Landing, kill his men, and of course kill Joy Cassell, which we mentioned earlier, and then and then forces Ned to stay in King's Landing in order to heal from his leg. And then, of course, having healed from his leg, he's going to be then confronting Cersei about the, the parentage of her children and, of course, dying as a result of that. So Littlefinger is basically telling us what's going to happen here, that Ned is going to make a noble splash and that he is going to die at the end of his arc and Part of the reason why he dies is because giving up his handship, as noble as it is, it does have consequences. Yes, indeed. Well said. And I think it's an interesting metaphor Littlefinger chooses that Ned is dancing on rotten ice because that suggests it's not really Ned's fault. Like if the ice is rotten, there's nothing really Ned can do. Like it, it's it's right. going to collapse underneath him no matter how well he dances. So. Uh, whether Littlefinger intends it or not, he's almost kind of making fun of himself because he's pres- he is part of that rotten ice. He's part of the reason the ice is so rotten. So it's not that yeah. Ned is a clumsy dancer; it's that he's in he's on an imperfect surface. He's in a failing system, and really yeah. the the solution to dancing on rotten ice is to not. Is to, that's some games are right. better off not playing. Absolutely. Our final little foreshadowing and groundwork piece is actually something that's a bit of a mystery, kind of a more minor mystery, but I have seen it kind of bounced around the fandom in that there is a curious mention in this chapter where the faceless men are first introduced to the reader. And it says this, quote, on Bravos, there's a society called the faceless men, Grandmaster Pycelle offered. Do you have any idea how costly they are? Littlefinger complained. You could hire an army of common cell sorts for half the price. And that's for a merchant. I dare think, I don't dare think what they might ask for a princess. So who is Littlefinger talking about? They actually, did they price out some sort of hit on a merchant with the faceless men at some point in the past? Is this more like Littlefinger talking like a hypothetical? Like, oh, if we tried to kill a merchant, you know, it'd be extremely expensive. But imagine how expensive it would be for, for, for a princess. And some of the theories I've seen bandied around the fandom. Well, the one main theory that I've seen bandied around the fandom is that Littlefinger is referring to Illyrio and the potential that Littlefinger is attempting to undercut the Vars and Illyrio plot by killing one of the key conspirators in the Vars Illyrio plot, namely Illyrio, who is a merchant, of course, a cheesemonger from Pentos, who is, uh, of course, in working in concert with Vars in order to slow burn chaos into Westeros in order to seat Daenerys, Viserys, Aegon, as we talked about in our Arya 3 episode. We're not really sure what actually they're they're up to at this point in the story, but has some sort of plot in mind and Littlefinger's attempting to undercut that. I'm not sure that it's actually, actually Illyrio, but I only bring that up because someone would complain that we hadn't brought it up, that there's potential that <laughs> Littlefinger had attempted to price out a hit on Illyrio at, back in the Game of Thrones. 
Yeah, this is the sort of thing I think might end up being a hypothetical, but might not. It's an interesting question, much like when Melisandre brings up uh, a bag of finger bones as an example of something you might make a right. glamour out of to John. And many people have said, okay, is that just an example? Or is, does she somehow have that and is going to make use of that in the future? Right. Who knows at this point? Uh, I think it is also interesting that this is one of the few times we get any kind of connection between Littlefinger and Bravos, where his family is originally from. Uh, so maybe maybe that's why Littlefinger is familiar with the Faceless Men. Maybe he has, you know, familiarity with Bravos institutions because of his family. Maybe they've, you know, maybe he still has people there or something. Who knows? Uh, but yeah, if it is if this is supposed to be directly referring to uh, him taking on a specific merchant and trying to get them killed, Illyrio does make sense given the the kind of shadow war between Varys and Littlefinger we see unfold over the course of the series. Yeah, and Martin has said as recently as 2016 that Littlefinger and Vars are antagonists in the series. So if you read it in that context, that makes sense. But one of the things that Martin also said in that same Q&A session is that Littlefinger knows more about what Varys is up to than Varys knows what Littlefinger is up to. So in that context, it could make sense that Varys was, that Littlefinger was trying to undercut Varys by killing his co-conspirator. Although, of course, it is curious in this chapter that we don't hear Varys making some sort of argument against that necessarily. But of course, the doors do close behind Ned Stark just as, as soon as this argument is made. So we don't get to hear any more fallout from it. So that's my, my take on, on whether it was a lyric that was being priced out for a hit. But I guess we'll have to see. Agreed. Well said, sir. So I think that about wraps it up for our foreshadowing and groundwork section for this episode, jumping on to our kind of theory slash discussion section. Uh, this chapter, of course, brings up one of the weightiest and most repeated themes in the series, uh, arguably the moral event horizon that the series presents to us over and over, and that is the subject of killing slash saving children in A Song of Ice and Fire. The series presents us with so many difficult ethical questions, but there are really none that are so poignant as saving and preserving the lives of children. As Emmett put it in talking about Viserys and Daenerys and what it means to Robert and what it means to Ned for Robert to order the deaths of these children, it's really, really emphasized here. I mean, obviously, we get it in Editor 2 where Robert talks about, where Ned thinks back to Robert's perspective on the death of Aegon and Rhaenys at the end of Robert's Rebellion. But the question doesn't end in that discussion at Editor 2. It doesn't end here in this small council discussion with Editor 8. It's a running theme in A Song of Ice and Fire. You've got characters from Davos and Daenerys, Rob Stark, Jamie Lannister, even for that matter, Doran Martell, Barristan Selmy, Brienne, and Ned Stark, and his attempt to save Cersei's children and the lies he told to save Jon Snow's life, something we touched on a little bit earlier. Kind of those themes of preserving the lives of the innocents, especially children, and the costs, and that's really important, the costs associated with it is something that George wants us to consider. And just a few examples before I turn over to Emmett, because I know he's got some great thoughts on it. You know, we have things from Davos and Stannis about Edric Storm, about Stannis knowing the cost, and Stannis saying, what is the life of one bastard boy against a kingdom, and Davos saying everything. And I think that's, uh, again, one of my favorite scenes from A Song of Ice and Fire, and really emphasizes that dichotomy and that, you know, in, in this chapter, Pycelle makes the argument that if you kill Daenerys and Viserys, you can preserve the lives of tens of thousands. Stannis makes a very similar argument. What is the life of one bastard boy against a kingdom? And Davos says everything because you are potentially you are potentially endangering your own kingship, your own nobility, your own sense of morality by allowing the murder of a of a kid 
to save thousands or even millions. And then we get also as well in Daenerys' relationship with her children, namely the, the former slaves who she liberated from Astapor and Yunkai and Marine, as well as her relationship to her dragon children and whether she should be allowing them to be chained in the dark and everything like that. But, you know, we also see it, I, I think we see it in several other places as well. You got Doran Martell, where he wants to have his vengeance that he craves so desperately, but he also wants to preserve the lives, the lives of children. You know, he tells... He tells Obara San to look at the children after she is thundering about who's going to deliver us Tywin's head. The mountain has already had his pet. And, you know, Obara's perspective is it doesn't please me to look at these children. What pleases me is the violence and satiating the vengeance that I so desperately crave. Switching back and forth between Essos and Marine, you got Barrison Selmy and the child hostages, where Skahaz wants them dead. And Barrison says, I will not suffer the murder of children. Accept that, or I'll have no part in this. And then you have Brienne saving the children at the end of the crossroads. Mm-hmm. You know, you have Rorge and Biter and the and some of the mountains men showing up at the end of the crossroads. And Brienne is realizing that she has no chance and no choice. But the reason why she steps out with her sword in hand is that she's thinking of the children, those orphans and those children who are left in the end of the crossroads that don't have any opportunity, any salvation Except for her, she has the ability to save them, and she walks out into the, into the rain with Oathbringer in hand. No chance and no choice, baby. Love that line. The point is, is that George is making a repeated return to the theme of children and saving them. So I guess, Emmett, my question to you is, what is the thematic point that George is making in returning to this motif that you got to save children, you got to save children, but there's also a cost too. So what do you think, Emmett, is the uh, the reason why George keeps re- keeps returning to this and the greater thematic point in the Song of Ice and Fire that he's making through this motif? Well, as you say, it's, a, it's it holds across the entire series, across the different books, across geography, across characters with very different personality and goals. And I, I think a lot of it springs from this council scene, as we're saying. It's come up a little bit before, as you said earlier in this first book, but this is really where that theme gets clarified in the series, is this debate between Robert and Ned over the fate of Daenerys. And in particular, I think it foreshadows what you said was one of your favorite scenes in this series and mine as well, the debate between Stannis and Davos over the fate of Edric Storm, which for me is probably the best articulation of that theme, I think, in the series. Yeah. Where you have this conflict between these two very different ideals and you're kind of made to understand them both and see how they interact where, uh, you know, Davos keeps bringing up Edric and Stannis finally says he's one boy. He could be the best boy who ever lived and it wouldn't matter. My duty is to the realm and everyone in it. How many, how many boys dwell in Westeros? How many girls? How many men? How many women? The darkness will devour them all, she says. The night that never ends. And, you know, he's caught in this position where he, as he says, dare I disregard her? If, if Melisandre is right about what's coming, do we have to be willing to pay this price in order to, for the greater good, to save the entire country? And right. Davos's counter to that is no. One person is worth the world. One person is everything. If you save one life, you save the world entire. And one, one soul is not worth condemning to such a hideous, unimaginable fate for any cause. And I think you can see the struggle between those two ideologies uh, happening throughout the series. As far as the kind of the themes Martin is going for there, I think there are a few thoughts that that come to mind. Uh, Some are kind of obvious and some a little less so. One, obviously, just as a writer trying to create a dramatic reaction in an audience, (laughs) children in danger, you know, just incites your worry and your fear and your protective instincts. I think most audience members just instinctively feel that even if you don't have kids, even if you never want to have kids, even if you don't like kids, like (laughs) just children in danger makes you go, no. So I think part of it is just that. Martin is, is just trying to, you know, incite your sympathy and get you on the edge of your seat. Putting kids in danger is a good way to do that. 
Uh, it can certainly get exploitative, and Martin can fall prey to that like anybody else. Um, I think sure. I would care more about the fate of the child hostages in Marine if we knew them at all. Like, we really have been given yeah. no time with them. So I think that's a case that might be less effective. But again, I think that's what is going forward dramatically there. At a kind of deeper level, there's this theme of protection that runs through the series, that you are supposed to take care of people, your responsibilities. You know, it's kind of a superhero comic thing. With great power comes great responsibility. Hmm. You, get, you get that with Ned sheltering John, like we were saying earlier in this chapter. You get that with Stannis and Davos and their fight over Edric Storm when uh, Davos says, a king protects his people or he is no king at all. You see it with one of my favorite lines in the series from Edmure Tully when he says about bringing his uh, bringing civilians inside the walls of Riverrun. My people, they were afraid. And uh, right. this is clearly a, something that's near and dear to Martin's heart. And I think children work well as emphasizing that theme because they cannot protect themselves. They are helpless for the most part. They need you. They need adults to take care of them. They can't. You can't just leave them on their own and assume they'll, they'll work it out. So that yeah. really kind of brings the theme of protection to the forefront. Um, similarly, kids are kind of, as well as they kind of embody helplessness and the need for protection, they also embody the future. Kids are the next generation. Kids are the people who are going to bring in the next harvest. Kids are the people who are going to have the dream of spring and rebuild when winter is done. And yeah. so if you kill them, you're, you're killing that, which is also something I think Davos is trying to get at with his argument in Stannis, that you're, you're killing the thing you say you're fighting for. What is it you're going to end up with then? If you kill, if you kill children, if you sacrifice, you know, it's that's the line that you know. If you what what profit a man to gain the entire world and lose his soul? Uh, I think you can see that come up with this theme uh, when it comes to yeah. sacrificing the children because they're the most important part of the world to come. Kids are, of course, also innocent for the most part. Mm. They are too young to have mm. done anything worthy of serious punishment. You know, there are exceptions, like Joffrey might be one. <laughs> Uh, but generally speaking, it's it's impossible to frame harming a child as any version of justice because they have not done anything to deserve it in any respect. So I think by repeatedly introducing this theme of harm to children, it's something that Martin can use to undercut uh, a character or a system's self-conception as just. And I think you can see that in this chapter when Ned is saying that Robert's entire regime is being undermined by what he's doing here. And I think Martin is able to do that. He's able to do that in a way that was would be less convincing if Danny was like twenty four instead of fourteen. Yeah, I think that would be a, like we wouldn't be quite as much on Ned's side in that case. Still, probably on Ned's side, but not not as sure. not as thoroughly, not as passionately because it's not a kid. And the other, the final layer here, I think for me, is this this constant interplay of idealism versus disillusionment that you could argue is the core theme of the series in terms of how many characters it touches upon. Kids fit into that because that's the process you're going through. That's that's puberty. That's adulthood. That's getting up and, and trying to measure the gap between the things you believed in as a kid and the things you deal with as, as an adult. So if you, if you do harm to them, it's like the most poignant heart-rending example of the death of idealism and the most hideous of all possible delusionments. You can think about it in a meta way, where a lot of the kids in the series are framed as like the young fantasy reader. The way hmm. Sansa and Bran have their values from songs, or like young Griff has his whole life been raised as a song, even a even someone like Tommen. So like if you if you sacrifice them, you're sacrificing their dreams. And so you're sacrificing the genre that is built upon those dreams. You are sacrificing fantasy, basically. I think might be at some level the argument Martin is making when you talk about the death of children is that if, you know, if your fantasy hero is willing to kill kids, then he's not the fantasy hero anymore. And that the genre yeah. needs to reflect that because the genre is about at some level inspiring those kids. 
So, you know, that's, 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 that's a little more meta and a little, not as direct as just, you know, that's great. save kids because you should save them. But I think that's part of what Martin is getting at here. No, I think that, like I said, that's, that's just terrific is that looking at these kids as our avatars into the series of children that are picking up a book like Lord of the Rings or Chronicles of Narnia. Cause if your kids don't, don't read a Game of Thrones to your, to your children. If, if we have any le- re- listeners out there who are giving their kids a Game of Thrones or any of the books from A Song of Ice and Fire, maybe not the best choice, but I think that's, that's a fantastic point. I think that's a, an incredibly poignant argument is to look at these kids as, as us at a younger age and, and our future and our, our progeny, our own kids is, as the same folks were going to get here. You know, I was, I, I had was rereading the dance with dragons probably two years ago for the first time. I mean, maybe not, but probably about like a year and a half ago. And I came up to the dance with dragons prologue and ha- having children myself, it was really horrific how Varamir interacts with these kids about saving the children for last and that prologue and how, just it just made my skin crawl and, and part of that I, I admit it, it didn't make my skin crawl as much earlier because I, did, I didn't have children but I, when I reread A Dance with Dragons back in 2017 I, I had a daughter I, I had Livy and now I've got Livy and Julia now so I mean that's it, it really kind of really makes a, an emotional punch on you and, and George does that so well and we talk about sometimes about how authors manipulate the readers and manipulate them but that manipulating authors are supposed to manipulate the readers. They're supposed to pull on that core emotional feeling inside of you. They're supposed to make you feel shit. And there's few better ways to make people feel shit than putting children in danger. Whether it's characters like Tom and Marcella, like we talked about from Aria three, who, you know, they, they might not be the greatest kids in the world, but they're sweet little doomed angels. And I think that Martin is going to, put them in peril and likely, I mean, they're doomed. I mean, like, like I said, they're going to suffer some sort of death, either at the hand of one of the sand snakes or potentially at the hands of John Connington, <laughs> hands of John Connington. Cause he's got great skill. <laughs> ah, ha, ha, and, laughing. and snakes don't have hands, Jeff. <laughs> that's true. That well, actually, I heard that they might, but that's beside. <laughs> uh, but no, it, it's, it, it really does heighten the tension for us. So when authors manipulate readers, they're not manipulating you to sell books. They're manipulating you to feel things. And feeling things is what you should be doing when you read A Song of Ice and Fire. When you read any type of fiction, for that matter, you should be emotionally connecting with the story that you're reading. And there are a few stories out there that connect with me more than A Song of Ice and Fire. So when you got kids like Tommen and Marcel, when you got Bran and Rickon and Sansa and Arya and Rob Stark to a lesser extent, too, like you, you, empathize with them you don't you hate seeing rob stark killed at the red wedding because you know he's just he's 16 years old man like he, i mean as much as he's calls himself a man grown there's there's so much he's, he's still just a kid i mean like and you're seeing him uh, from his mom's eyes that's the crucial part of it in that moment right. you know she thinks of him as her babe red-faced and squalling when he first came into the world and like you say, you just, that's the drama of it is you want to reach into right. the page and protect them and you can't. And that's, I think yeah. that's something that Martin emphasizes real well, which is actually kind of remarkable in its own way because he's not a father himself. So I think he does yeah. actually a 
quite a good job of kind of getting across that that intense need to take care of your kids and protect them uh despite yeah. i mean you know i don't know the man's story i'm sure he's he's felt that about relatives kids and kids <laughs> he's met in passing but i think he does an unusually good job of that for someone who does not personally have children you're you're 100 percent correct you know George, from what I remember, does have nephews and nieces from his, he's, he's an only son with a couple sisters, if I'm not mistaken, if I'm remembering his personal story correctly. But one of the things that George has said is that he doesn't have children himself, but he considers the characters from his story to be his children. So you can see like that there's real emotion built into the fates of these kids and really into the fates of, of all of these point of view characters, as well as even these secondary and tertiary characters. So it's, it's great storytelling. It pulls you at an emotional level. And I think like your, your point to cycle all the way back to something you were talking about too, is having these characters be our avatars in the story of these kids being our avatars for fantasy is just a terrific point that really helps us understand the story better and helps us connect emotionally with the story in a, a much more fulfilling way than you might get from, from other fantasy or, or from other, other, or from other books in fiction. Well said, sir. Thank you for the compliment. And on, yeah, that's fantastic. And on that friendly note, I think that pretty much wraps us up for uh, a game of Thrones, Eddard eight. Uh, thank you so much for listening, everybody, as always. Yeah. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And if you guys wouldn't mind, please rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, SoundCloud, everywhere and anywhere you can find your podcast. We do appreciate and read every review. And it does help folks and it does help folks find us who might be interested in A Song of Ice and Fire and helps them join our little community that we're establishing here. Yes, indeed. And you can check out our Patreon if you haven't already on patreon.com forward slash not a cast A-S-O-I-A-F. You can find us on Twitter at Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, and our email is Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. Personally, you can find me at PoorQuentin on Twitter or at PoorQuentin.tumblr.com. And you can find me at Brenna Beefish on Twitter, Brenna Beefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsoficeandfire.wordpress.com. So, of course, this was a Game of Thrones Editor 8. Please join us next time as we are introduced to The Vale, The Eerie, Lady Lysa, Sweet Robin, and above all, one of our namesakes, Brendan Blackfish himself. <laughs> My co-host's avatar is finally joining the cast of the series next week. Oh, yeah. In Catalan 6. It's going to be a fun one. It should be, yeah. So, thank you, everyone, for listening, and we will see you guys next week. Take care, folks. <laughs>